Welcome to the number one MSU basketball podcast in America. The Final Four is not on the schedule. Join Rod and me, Eric, as we dive deep into the Spartans to get you prepared for every game. Subscribe today for in-depth recruiting updates and fantastic interviews with today's important college basketball personalities like Robbie Hummel. Thank you for having me. I uh, I have listened to your guys' podcast numerous times on drives throughout any Midwestern Big Ten city, so I, I am big fans of your guys' work. Jay Billis. And next time, hey, if anybody in Michigan wants a December tea time, call me. You wimps won't show up, but I'll I'll be there. I'll be there and play in the cold, and Izzo will be in front of the fire with hot chocolate. Coaches Thomas Kelly. Oh, no problem. Glad to be back, man. Glad to be back. Mike Garland. You just can't sit there and trade twos for threes. You can't do it. You're going to lose. Coming down the stretch, you're going to lose. And more. You won't find better coverage of Spartan Hoops than you will get here. For both the casual and hardcore fan, come along as we take you for a green and white ride. Hey everybody, it's Eric alongside Rod here for our final Big Ten preview show. Rod's projected number one team, the Michigan State Spartans. Before we begin, we'd like to thank Michael Kissler, who joined at the Scott Skiles level on Patreon, and thanks to Kenneth Kramer for a one-time payment via PayPal. We do the show, Rod and I, because we love MSU basketball just like you. Obviously, if you want to support what we do, there are a number of ways that you can do that. The easiest is to go to the Final Four is not in the schedule.com slash support, or if you're lazy, tffinots.com slash support, where you can find links to send donations via PayPal or Venmo, or recurring monthly support through Patreon and Substack, and the benefits of that are described in the Patreon page. We'd really like to add one or two more businesses as sponsors to the show. It's a great way to get in front of some rabid Spartan fans, so if you're interested, shoot me an email at eric at tffinots.com, that's E-R-I-C, or if there's some other way you'd like to support the Final Four is not on the schedule, I'm happy to talk. Most of your support to the show goes to cover the infrastructure and promotion to other Spartan fans. Finally, a great way to help the show continue to grow is to share it with your friends and family. Listenership for the show has grown a ton over the past two years, putting our show often inside the top 100 basketball podcasts in America and as high as a top 35 show, which we feel pretty fortunate and is pretty amazing for just a college basketball show. So continue leaving reviews on your podcast player, which helps the algorithms send more Spartan fans our way. But now let's talk about the Michigan State Spartans and a brief recap of last season. Last season was up and down for Michigan State coming off two straight disappointing seasons, at least by program standards. Of course, Michigan State opened after a tune-up with a win over Northern Arizona with a tight one-point loss to Gonzaga on an aircraft carrier, a loss which left most of us feeling pretty good with a close win given the opponent and quality of the performance. They then beat Kentucky by nine in double overtime to further encourage optimism. That was followed by a two-point win at home over Villanova in a game which actually wasn't that close for the vast majority of the way, but tightened up at the very end. So MSU sat 3-1 and looked pretty good doing it. Then the injuries hit. Already out Jaden Akins with a foot injury that was suffered late in summer, and he'd just been recovering to the point where he was just maybe coming back from the injury, and then Malik Hall hurts his foot before the trip out to Oregon for the PK-85. So that meant MSU went into the loaded... Phil Knight Invitational, down two key players, and the results showed. They lose pretty comprehensively to Alabama, battle their way to tight wins over Oregon and Portland, but I don't think anybody was really fooled about where this team stood from a depleted standpoint and personnel. Then came the road game at Notre Dame, which was probably the low point of the season. Exhausted and attritioned MSU team lost to a very, very bad Irish team by 18 on the road. 
And that in turn was followed by a home court loss to Northwestern to open Big Ten play, which of course turns out Northwestern is better than we thought. But all that early optimism we had was gone. Yet, as Michigan State did throughout the year, they got off the mat. They showed a lot of resiliency and went out to Penn State College and beat Penn State team by nine on the road, which turns out to actually be a pretty good win after we saw how Penn State's season turned out. That gave the Spartans momentum and bought them time to get Aikens and Hall back into the lineup and to reintegrate with the team. Three easy non-conference wins set the stage for Michigan State to get back into conference play. State ripped off three straight wins and seemed to be heading into Champaign-Urbana with a matchup against Illini with a bunch of positive momentum. Unfortunately, those dashed by a tough ending, but also, more importantly, Malik Hall re-injured his foot. So the gut punch of a one-point loss the next game at home to Purdue followed, and Michigan State was suddenly at 4-3 and three in the league. After a number of games, Michigan State got back up to 8-6 in the league, and then started going up and down as they tried to steady the ship before they got back to full health. And then the horrible shooting incident in February happened on campus. The Minnesota game, which was scheduled, was postponed and ended up never getting played, which meant Michigan State's first game back was back in Ann Arbor on the road. A strong performance was sort of tainted by a late-game collapse, which allowed Michigan to grab the win and drop Michigan State to 8-7. and seven. Michigan State then returned with a feel-good win at home against Indiana and a blowout win, and it felt like things were back on track. And then... Despite the great play in the, against the Iowa Hawkeyes in Iowa City, a completely incomprehensible late-game collapse led to a loss in Iowa. They closed with wins over Nebraska and Ohio State to finish 11-8 in the league, and had Minnesota been played, most likely 12-8, and, and Michigan State finishes probably tied for the three-way tie for second place. But it still felt like this is an unpredictable team, and that feeling wasn't changed by the Spartans' really poor performance and especially with A.J. Hogard, disappointing performance in the Big Ten opener loss to Ohio State in the tournament. Yet, as we've seen often in East Lansing, the best was saved for last. Michigan State drew a solid USC team in the first-round game, a group with some strong offensive performers, and Spartans handled the Trojans by 10, controlling the game pretty much throughout the game. That set up a round of sit-32 tilt against the Big East champion, the Marquette Golden Eagles. Marquette was a popular pick to get to at least the Elite Eight. But, as usual, Michigan State had other ideas. MSU's guards outplayed Marquette's highly regarded group and received strong scoring and rebounding efforts from Joey Hauser and Mati Sissoko to win the game by nine and get Tomizzo to his 15th Sweet 16. Waiting for them was Kansas State, another strong offensive team, and in probably what's arguably the best tournament game of the year, The Sweet 16 matchup, Michigan State just couldn't get enough stops when it mattered and ended up falling by five in overtime. It was a disappointing, frustrating end of the season, but MSU showed that in this tournament run how good a team they could be. And with all the players returning, for the most part, outside of Joey Hauser, a lot of optimism into what could happen this season, especially with the new recruiting class. We'll start at the end first. So there's this old line about Tom Izzo teams, which has reached the level of cliche that, well, they're playing their best basketball at the end of the season, but it's actually (laughs) true. Most of the time, if you, not every year, but even during let's consider the last three years, actually one of the low points of the, of Izzo's tenure, which says something about Izzo's tenure, right? That all three years, your tournament team, 
you actually their record is um three and three in the tournament so not brilliant by msu standards but we're not talking about you know let's say purdue's track record over the last three years um in the tournament but (laughs) I, i i think you look at these last three years and and as we say kind of a low point of his tenure and it was true all three years, you think back to the COVID year, uh, Michigan State really was in danger more so than any other year in his in during this streak of not making the tournament. And because at the end of the season, they weren't sitting in good position anyway, and then they had to run through a gauntlet of top five, top ten teams. The good news about that was it gave them an opportunity to rack up significant victories, which would be needed to make a case to build a resume for tournament inclusion. And that's exactly what they went out and did. And then once they got to the tournament, they lost that heartbreaking game to UCLA in overtime. But uh, little did we know in a play-in game that UCLA was going to go all the way to the final four. The year following, MSU was not playing its best basketball. In fact, I think you could say, they were playing their worst basketball at the end of the regular season. If you remember, th- there were some ugly losses down the stretch at Michigan, at Ohio State, really, really bad. They were okay in the Big Ten tournament. Yeah. And then they went out, beat Davidson in the first round of the NCAA tournament, a tough Davidson team, and then gave Duke, who ended up in the Final Four, everything they wanted. MSU led that game at the under four timeout before fading. So once again, you could say, well, they saved their best for last. You could, you could argue that the, the Davidson and Duke games were <laughs> two of the best games they played all season last year. Obviously it was the point um, uh, that once the NCAA tournament hit, that was Michigan state at its best played very well against USC played outstanding basketball to beat a Marquette team that not only won the Big East regular season, but they also won the Big East tournament. So validation and a very good Big East that actually had the NCAA champion eventually in Connecticut among its membership. And Marquette, I believe, swept UConn last year. So a very good Marquette team that Michigan State, kind of the flip side of what happened to them the year prior against Duke. Tight game at the under four, and then MSU just controlled the last four minutes and pulled away. And then they played in the Sweet 16 against a very capable Kansas State team, what I think was probably the highest quality game. I'm trying to be as objective as I can be, but I do think from a neutral perspective, it probably was the best game, most entertaining game of the entire tournament. Both teams making huge plays, um, yeah. trading body mm-hmm. blows back and forth. And in the end, Kansas State just made a play or two more to win it. So it capped what was, as you said, very much an up and down season. If we go back to the beginning now, Michigan State got off to a very good start, and I think everybody was feeling very good about where the team stood after that Villanova win. Two things there. One, we didn't yet know that Gonzaga and Kentucky and Villanova, which, honestly, you're not going to find many threesomes of name-brand opponents that have better Mm 
credibility than those three. Um, but all of them failed to meet preseason expectations, never mind reach the, the normal standards of recent years for those programs. Well, we couldn't know that in November, you know. So you could say, well, maybe those wins didn't say as much as we thought at the time. And that's that's not unfair. But the bigger thing was that, as you mentioned, MSU saw its injury situation go from bad to worse when Malik Call got hurt to join Jaden Akins. And I think that had a lot to do with Michigan State's inconsistency, to be honest. Yeah. When you're taking two of your top six and not just eliminating them from some games, but then you have to factor in what are they when they get back? Are they the guy that you anticipated they would be in the fall? Well, no, not for a while. I think it took Jaden Akins until I would say the last few weeks of the regular season before he was truly back yep. and the guy that they thought he would be. Malik Hall never got there. No, he really. Was, yeah, he was never. I mean, the, look, he was the well, first couple games. The Kentucky game is kind of his. Yeah, uh, that was it. He was arguably their best player before he got hurt against Villanova, yep. and then, um, and then it was just a matter of his trying to gut it out to help the team. He wasn't the guy that he would have been. I, I feel secure in saying that, you know. So that had a lot to do with it, because remember, not a very deep team. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about MSU's improved depth, and it is substantially. Last year, we're not talking about a deep team. You know, you take two of your top six out, and then what do you have left after that? Well, you've got three freshmen, all of whom have great potential, but none of whom was really ready, I think, to be a game-in, game-out consistent contributor last season that's the way it turned out you have a sophomore Pierre Brooks who had an opportunity to seize a role but wasn't able to do it successfully so and then you get beyond that you're talking about non-scholarship players right you know so this was not a very deep team so when you take two of your top six out and then even when they come back they're they're back kind of in name only they're not really what they were that's going to have an impact and I think it did. It had a lot to do with why Michigan State was inconsistent. Um, also because of the lack of depth. And we talked about this many times. And, and it's, you know, this is an interesting thing to me. And I'm not saying this to toot our own horns. But we spent a lot of time last year talking about how this was not Michigan State as we've come to know it. The profile of that team, the way that they played stylistically looked much more like a standard issue Wisconsin team than it did Michigan state. And I just did not hear very many people talking about that. And I'm going to return to that theme later because I think what I'm talking about, that lack of depth and the way that it impacted how MSU played and the success or inconsistency that they had, um, and why this year looks to be potentially very, very different. I think those things are being undersold yeah. and I don't think they're, I don't think they're properly understood. And I, I get it. I can excuse people who don't cover Michigan state day in, day out, not fully appreciating how hugely important it is for a Tom Izzo team to have depth. 
because more than any other coach I can think of, what he wants to do virtually requires it. Yeah. You know, you could sit there and say, oh, these are young kids. Why can't they play 35 minutes a night? <laughs> Not how it works. Yeah. Not how it works when you want to play the way Michigan State typically does. Credit to Izzo, and I don't think he received a lot of credit for this, and he should have, for looking at his team honestly and realizing we can't do what we normally do and opting to play differently to maximize that team's chances at success. And I think in the end, you know, I uh, the standings don't say it, but I'm going to say it. They would have beat Minnesota, and they would have finished in a tie for second in the league. Yeah. Pretty good. They go to the Sweet 16, the only Big Ten team to get out of the first weekend. Pretty good. Given the circumstances, I think you have to give him credit for making those adjustments. Uh, and I don't think that's been properly appreciated. But I, but look, I'm speaking for myself, but I, I feel safe in saying I'm speaking for just about everybody who's listening to this. We're all going to be very, very grateful that we don't have to see a rerun of that. And there's ample reason to suspect that we are going to see Michigan State getting back to the essence of what it is as a program, which I think should eliminate a lot of that inconsistency that we saw last season. Um, that's the theory, at least. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that theory in detail. Right. Um, but that's what I think. That's what I think we're we're looking at. And that's what I think we had last season uh, for better or for worse. They didn't have a lot of choice. Yeah. And I think, you know, all, the other aspect of that we talked about a lot during the season, which you didn't touch on it yet. And maybe a little later, but just briefly, one of the big changes in consistency was the the play of A.J. Hogarth, the point guard, which he was so Absolutely. important for Michigan State in executing its offense and defense. Right. I mean, that's the team runs as well as the the point guard is playing oftentimes. And we had a guy who in the, if you watch the NCAA tournament, you think this guy is unbelievable. He's a first round pick. And then if you watch the big 10 tournament, you're like, this guy's terrible. <laughs> he how's even on the floor. Right. I mean, that was like a week apart. Right. And that that's, that's exactly it. Um, it was something we said often last year and even sub the year before this team will go as AJ Hogarth goes and when he's locked in and focused and playing the way Izzo wants him to play in terms of balancing his responsibilities in, in terms of making teammates better while also finding opportunities to do things himself, Michigan State is a very, very good team. They were a very, very good team last year when that A.J. Hogard was on the floor. When he wasn't, you know, they they were not so good. And, and Michigan State, you know, there, there are some programs, basically anybody who runs uh, predominantly motion offense. So Purdue would fall into that category as an example of this. Can get away with, at times, not having a great, obvious point guard. You know, mm -hmm. um, because that, that system doesn't lean on one guy to initiate offense, to run it the way that point guard centric offenses do. Well, Tom Izzo has always run a point guard centric system. And so his best teams tend to be the ones that have the best point guard play. I, I would say the only final four team he's had that didn't have 
near elite point guard play would be the 0405 team when Drew Neitzel was a freshman, because at that stage of his career, he wasn't an elite point guard. He became a very, very good one, but he wasn't he wasn't an elite guy at that point. That's the only exception to it. Pretty much every maybe you can make an argument that the 2010 team, because Kalen Lucas went down with an injury, lacked it as well. But um, you know, other than that, his final four teams have that. And AJ had not shown that consistency until they got to the tournament. It's no accident. They had a very, very good tournament run in a year where AJ Hogard made the all regional team. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Right. So those two things dovetailed and we're going to spend much more time talking about it. I think the same thing applies for this year. I think there is reason to suspect that he is set to have his best year ever. But the other good thing is for the first time, I think Michigan state has a guy who can be used to um, keep AJ Hogard honest. Yep. In other words, if he's not doing the job, he can sit on the bench and Michigan state can get high quality play. Even while he's out of the lineup, that is a big, big difference potentially a um, a championship-level difference, in my view. But again, lots of time to get into that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just finally, I, the only other thing I'd say, you know, we're talking about depth and the lack of depth that Michigan State had last year. I, in some ways, they had depth, but just in the wrong places, right? Like you had plenty of depth at the five, but that's not where you really needed it last season. And, um, you know, you, you lose Hall and Aikens, your four and your three starting player, and there's just there was no one there to fill that void, and that was – that was the bigger problem that you just didn't have any wing options. Uh, for well, really let, let's look at how Michigan state was lined up last season. The idea was Paul was going to be the starter at the three and Aikens was going to be the sixth man. Right. Or, or Tyson Walker It was kind of unclear at the beginning of the season, which of those two guys would start, which one would be the first guy off the bench. But it, it really didn't matter much because it was going to be largely a six man group was going to play the majority of the minutes. If, uh, uh, the five spot, I guess, a little different, but you get my drift. Yeah. When they lost Hall and Aikens, it was both guys at the three. Yeah, right. That were out. So you had no choice but to do some unconventional things that really left Michigan State um, hurting at a key position, you know, and they never really found a good answer for that until basically until Aikens and Hall were back. That was the answer. They didn't find another one (laughs) somewhere in their roster. So yeah, it was, you're right in that, you know, two guys, although I would argue that the depth at five wasn't really depth as we usually think about it, because again, you were talking about two freshmen behind Marty. Sure. sure. Those guys were learning and they were very, you couldn't count, on Kohler and Cooper from game to game the way that I think you're going to be able to this year. Right. You know, it was a different deal, but yeah, depth, there's just no question. Michigan state's depth, really the only guy that you could count on game in game out um, for the entirety of the season to an extent was Trey Holloman. And even that was only in certain ways. Like you knew he wasn't going to make many mistakes with the ball and you knew he could, he could give them something defensively. Um, but he wasn't aggressive 
in looking for his own offense. So even there, it was limited. It was a very, very shallow bench by by Tom Izzo standards, incredibly shallow. Um, and so he had to do some things differently than we're used to seeing in order to navigate that. And, and one of the uh, big downfalls of someone, if you are considered a Hall of Fame coach, which he obviously is, is that even when you do things that are impressive, it, no one no one notices, no one cares as much. You don't get you don't get the accolades, right? Like there's well, no I way, think that's what I'm pointing yeah, out. Right? There's no way yeah. Tom Izzo could get coach of the year in the Big Ten. I just don't see how it could possibly happen. If he wins it all this year, he's still not gonna get coach of the year in the Big Ten. I I mean, unless they go like 20 0 or something. I just I find it it'd be Depends. it'd be pretty hard to imagine. There'll be some team that over you know overachieves and people say, Wow, this, you know, this guy really brought them. You know, I don't I just guessing that's generally how it goes, right? When you're a highly acclaimed coach, it's really hard to get there. Yeah, I agree with your general sentiment there. Um, but I I do think, and that's what I was kind of trying to point out, is that I don't think that got acknowledged or even understood very well by most people who who cover the sport, that they didn't look at Michigan State and say, boy, this is a really different kind of team than we're used to seeing and appreciate what that meant and the fact that they were actually look, we talk about the inconsistency, and it's all true. They essentially they were a second place team. This wasn't a disaster, right? You yeah. know, they they did in a in a competitive Big Ten. They did a lot of good things, not as much as we're used to seeing, but they did a lot of good things. And then I think the tournament run sort of validated that work. That you know they were able to. Um, they were able to play their best basketball when they absolutely needed it most. Um, and, and again, doing it in a way that is different than what we're used to seeing. And you're right. Izzo should receive more credit for that than he gets. But, um, you know, it's also funny too. And I know we talked about this at times. We had Mike, were we had Mike Garland on twice yeah, or three twice. times. Yeah. For the Penn twice, State twice. preview and then the Iowa okay. post game. We talked to him explicitly about the offensive rebounding. Right. Yeah. And he denied it. <laughs> Absolutely denied it. Said, no, 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 that's not true. They're believe me, they want to be better. I I believe that they wanted to be better, but I know what my eyes were telling me. <laughs> you're watching a game on a television screen and a Michigan State shot goes up, and you're not seeing any green and white bodies in the shot. That's not normal. You know? Yeah. By that, I mean, of course, they're not sending guys to the boards offensively. That's not normal. And we saw we noticed it early and the numbers, uh, which we'll we'll talk about, um, you know, got got into that, uh, got into that area um, and, and, and proved, demonstrated clearly that they were not. A, a, not even by Michigan State standards, by average team standards, they were a poor offensive rebounding team. But I don't think it was so much that they were trying and failing. I think they made a strategic decision yeah, to not go hard to the boards, to maximize getting back. Yeah, for, for sure that was happening. And and you when you're watching the broadcast, I mean, I'm, I go to the home games, so I don't get the home uh, announcement, but at least when I watch the away games, Everyone talked about Michigan State as if they were watching the Michigan State from a few years ago. Oh, they right. they run all the time. They rebound a lot. I'm right. like, boy, I, yeah. I don't feel like they do either of those things a lot this it, year. It goes it goes to show you, man. Um, when 
percent, and this is true in life. This isn't just about Michigan State basketball, <laughs> but when you have perceptions that get entrenched, and sometimes for very good reason, over a long period of time, changing them is very, very tough work. And even when the evidence is clearly in front of your face, it still is yeoman's work to try to alter perceptions. And you did see it with Michigan coverage of Michigan State last year. These guys talk as if nothing's any different than it's ever been when it was radically different in some very important ways. If we talk about what are the core values, the staples of Tom Izzo's program, I would say the the first two things I would talk about would be offensive rebounding and transition play. Those are two things that are non-negotiables for him. He emphasizes every year through various groups of players, you know, entirely different rosters. It's always there, right? Neither of those two things were present last year at all. And how often did you hear people talk about it? Almost never. We did. And again, I'm not saying that to pat ourselves on the back. It's just, it's, it's an illustration of the point that even, even broadcasters who spend time, um, thinking about these things and, and preparing to do their work, uh, national writers, I just don't feel that anybody was truly locked into what was a very significant story about Michigan state last year, that they were a radically different team. Yeah. Well that, I mean, it just goes to show that, you know, if you're a broadcaster, you're doing six games a week, five games a week, whatever you can't possibly know. You can't pay enough attention watching up game film, or I suppose you could, but it'd be pretty hard to do to really know the intricacies of the different teams. That and, and to your point, just what, how things might be different than they have been in the past. And I, you know, you don't just get basketball analysis that show you get some philosophy too. So you get some really good stuff here. So <laughs> some, some life lessons. Uh, so let's talk about the the team and the roster first. We'll go over as we've been going with all the previews this season, we've talked about the players lost to the team and we'll begin with Joey Hauser, who's obviously the most significant loss for the year. Uh, there was a small chance that he would come back this season. There was some talk for a little bit that there was significant NIL money available that he might return, but he decided to uh, head pro. Uh, he was the team was inconsistent, but the one guy who really wasn't was Joey Hauser. He was solid six yeah. six foot nine senior. Definitely had the best career of his uh, or best year of his career. He finished second in the team in scoring at fourteen point four points a game. Was number one in rebounding at seven a game. Shot 48, 46, and eighty eight. Had more assists and turnovers, which is really great for playing at the four, and actually played very passable defense. He was actually, you know, he was not a negative out there on the defensive end. So, uh, you know, he's obviously a big hole that has to be filled going into this season. Yeah, just a just a great, great way to end his career after, you know, his first two seasons were um, struggles. Yeah, and and especially because he was a guy who was so highly regarded coming out of high school, had a pretty good freshman year at Marquette transferred to Michigan state, had to sit out a year and you know, the, the expectations being so high and we only saw glimpses of what he could be. But man, last season, as you say, the team's performance was up and down, 
but Joey Hauser's really wasn't. He just shot the ball hellaciously well. I think was a very good defensive rebounder. Um, cut down on the mistakes, and I think a lot of that was due to the fact that Michigan State changed the way they utilized him. They stopped trying to force him into a playmaking role, mm-hmm. yeah, and just kind of let him focus on scoring uh, primarily from the perimeter on offense, not ask him to do as much. And so lo and behold, you see uh, the turnovers decrease and his assists stayed, stayed relatively high. Um, and as you say, he got to a point where, because I think he got his body in great shape and he just learned more through, you know, video work and just through experience in playing became passable defensively. He was never going to be a great defender, but he was far better than he was his first two seasons. So you add it all up. He was right there. It was either he or Tyson Walker was Michigan State's best and most consistent player last season. And I I, I feel great for him that he was able to go out on a high note, um, playing very, very well, very consistently. Um, and I know he's with Utah. Um I'm not sure where he stands in terms of, I would assume he'll probably do uh, a G league stint uh, this year, but I think the fact that he's, he's played pro basketball and has a chance to carve out an NBA career for himself is fantastic. And um, you know, it was good for him and his loss definitely creates uh, a hole. And, and the, the major area it it hurts is an obvious one. It's perimeter shooting, right? Yeah. 46% from three from the four spot on high volume. at decent volume. Yeah. yeah. Those guys don't grow on trees. And it is a truism that Tom Izzo teams tend to be, and this goes back way before the modern emphasis on finding stretch fours. Izzo's always wanted stretch fours. He had them, you know, A.J. Granger was a stretch four, you know, long before that came into vogue. So ideally he wants a four man who can be a threat from three because it it, it makes your spacing better. Mm-hmm. It stretches the defense, which should create other opportunities, particularly for this Michigan State team that has some real dynamism at the guard spots a stretched defense is going to create better opportunities for them in theory. And so replacing that is a hard task. I don't think Michigan state will completely replace the numbers or the efficiency that that's a tall order, you know? Yeah. Um, I do think they've got reason to hope that they can do well enough, but the fact is losing Joey Hauser is, is a real loss in that area in particular, you know? Yep. And I, I guess I just want to point out one last time. I know I mentioned a few times during the season, but of all the people who were at least in Michigan state's roster who were affected by COVID Joey Hauser, at least from reports. And yep. he clearly was someone who was really bothered by this. And if you, if you have any young adults who are going through college or, you know, at this time, or even high school kids, you, you'll notice the, the level of depression, anxiety, those sorts of things are really got a lot worse during COVID um, for whatever reason. No question. And no question. I, my wife's a pediatrician and it, there's no doubt it's gotten a lot worse. And so he really struggled with that. And so it's a really great credit that he's managed to overcome those things. And um, 
anyway, it was great. It's a great finish this, to his career, but I think we, we, uh, I think we don't recognize that that may have played as much role as anything else. Basketball things, you know, the fact that he just absolutely those things. And he, you know, and, and something that's a uh, credit to him is that he was uh, relatively open about that too, which is a hard thing uh, for anybody to admit that, you know, they were bothered. They were affected by things like that yeah. psychologically. You know, that's not often an easy thing for people to be candid about. And he was, yeah. you know, and the fact that he was able to overcome that is, yeah, is fantastic for him. It was very, very important for Michigan State basketball. Um, and and again, now he's he's kind of on track to to hopefully have a bright future in basketball as a career, wherever it takes him. Yeah. We definitely saw that problem. Like you, with Patrick McCaffrey's a good example of that too, right? That I think probably sure. affected him as well at Iowa. All right. So uh, again, not many players lost to this team, which is uh, a credit to Izzo and his staff. And the fact that they are very much unlike most of the basketball world. The second departure was Pierre Brooks and six foot six Brooks, uh, plenty of opportunities, right? This is the, the, if there was ever an opportunity, a chance to really get work your way into rotation to get minutes, uh, this was it. He had multiple injuries at his position, and yet he only averaged three point six points a game, one point seven rebounds a game, played thirty times, but shot thirty three, thirty two, and sixty, and uh, ended up transferring to Butler uh, to restart his career. and And I think you know one of the big things with him too is the fact that his conditioning just did not seem great, and that he seemed to. Uh, move move less well as the season went along than at the start. That's really it. I think that impacted what his ceiling was defensively in a pretty profound way. And we know this. Everybody knows it. If you can't defend, you're not going to play at Michigan State. You know, I mean, that is just the bottom line. Right. Better players than Pierre Brooks have seen that happen to them. I, you know, I look at somebody like Nick Ward, you know, Nick Ward and granted injuries played a role in it too, blah, blah, blah. But the fact is Nick Ward's junior year, his last year in the program, his role was decreasing primarily because Michigan state was better overall when they were better defensively with Xavier Tillman and Kenny Goins as the starting point or the starting uh, posts. You know, and, and that's Nick Ward. We're talking about a guy who unquestionably was a great, gifted, low post scorer, a very good rebounder at both ends, a guy who had real strengths in his game, but because of the negatives defensive, his role was decreasing over time. Pierre, it's look, I feel badly, and I think it's unfortunate that it didn't work out because I, I really liked Pierre coming out of high school. I saw his first game in high school. I went out specifically to see him because I thought he was a guy Michigan State would be interested in. Um, and they were. And they they recruited him hard. They signed him. There's a lot of reason to be enthusiastic about him. But I think the conditioning part and, and probably also the um, – and we'll never – we can never really speak to this. You only – you only go by what you see on the floor, but um, I have to assume that maybe he wasn't quite as good in terms of um, his 
his attention to detail in the film room, so to speak. Yeah. Because that's an area that's also very, very important for guys who make strides at Michigan State. You can look at guys like Travis Trice, Denzel Valentine, who were not gifted athletes. So they had to find, even when they got into better condition, they were never going to be. Joey Hauser, the good example we were just talking about, mm-hmm. got himself into better condition. But I think it was also evidence that he put the time in in the film room to get better. And sometimes by doing that, by being able to know what an opponent's going to do to anticipate things, you can give yourself shortcuts that can make up sometimes for a lack of premium athleticism. Absolutely. You know, that's that's the theory, at least. So um, it just never came together for Pierre. And then as the season wore on, I think it even started impacting the lack of confidence, the lack of steady minutes impacted the lack of confidence and that in turn took a toll on what was always his greatest strength, which was his ability to shoot Mm -hmm. Um, that declined as well. And so by the end of the year, you couldn't even really count on him for that. Um, So it's unfortunate. It didn't work out. I really liked him. I think he's uh, he was a very good student. Um, He's a player who does have certain gifts and talent and I'm hoping for his sake that he's able to put it together at Butler and have a strong end to his career. Um, but it just didn't happen at Michigan state. The reality from an MSU perspective, strictly in a basketball sense is that losing him really doesn't create there. There's not the impact that say losing a Joey Hauser right. creates. Yeah. You're not really having to replace very much. Yeah. And, and, and we even thought this before the season began that if he didn't emerge as a, as a viable option, yeah. that position that he would, really struggled to find a way into rotation this year uh, with this with the freshman coming. It out. was the handwriting was on the wall. Yeah. I mean, right. w- with the way they recruited what they were bringing in, the number of guys they were bringing back, it was very obvious to see this coming that last season. And it's crazy in some ways, a, a stark illustration of the realities of the sport. Now that a guy who was just beginning his sophomore year, we could see it last this time last year. That, hey, this is a fork in the road for Pierre Brooks and his career at MSU. And he only had one season under his belt. I know. But that's where you that's where we were. And sure enough, that that proved to be true. Well, in, a, in an unusual twist of fate or something that seems to happen a lot, he will be returning to the Breslin Center this yeah. season uh, with his uh, Bulldogs in early non-conference matchup, which we'll talk about later when he comes closer to the game. So final player loss is Jason Whitens, a 6'5 Western Michigan transfer who had an unfortunate ACL injury in the first exhibition game uh, before last season. Came back, was healthy, and played this year. Uh, Scott into 19 games. Uh, was very in- instrumental in the win against Portland. He chipped in with four points, two boards, uh, but never really, because of the return of Hall and Aikens, even in limited uh, capacity, he never really saw much uh, of a role going forward. I thought he might play a little more than he did. I think that in the end, the fact that he really wasn't a tremendously confident offensive player yeah. um, limited how much he could do. But he will always have that game against Portland where he got, I believe both of those rebounds were offensive, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. Yep. I think you're Something right. MSU didn't get a lot of last <laughs> year's team as we were talking about. Um 
he made big contributions to enable them to get a win and what would have been a very bad loss had they lost it. Um, so he did contribute. Uh, glad for his sake. Really, the biggest thing is that he battled back from that injury and was able to have his season played for a high major program that had some success. So I feel glad for him in uh, in that respect for sure. And I only briefly met him, and he seemed like a really nice kid when I uh, spoke to him for a few minutes after the Ohio State game. All right, so before we go to the returning players, I'd like to remind you of our longtime sponsor of the show, Nudge Printing. Nudge Printing run by Gabe and Brittany, fantastic Spartan fans. They set up their own print company in Portland, Michigan. So all the products you purchase from Nudge Printing are made here in Michigan. Uh, they have a huge selection of Spartan apparel. You can head on over to nudgeprinting.com to see their selection. They also have other schools besides just Spartans. So if you want something from Eastern Michigan or Central Michigan, Western Michigan, Hope College, Alma, you can head on over to Nudge Printing. It's likely if it's a school in Michigan, outside of the Wolverines, you're going to be able to find something from Nudge Printing. They also have a few other random schools in the country. You can find stuff like Texas State uh, or other schools. Uh, I have a bunch of Nudge Printing stuff. I know Rod does. It's fantastic stuff. Super comfortable. I have a hoodie. I have a t-shirt. Very comfortable. Very wearable. I use both of those to win the free throw competition to win a trip for two to the final four. So they are very functional. <laughs> it's very handy. Uh, you can't go wrong if you order nudge printing stuff. I can't recommend that the products enough. I have a decal on my computer as well. So uh, everything they make is really high quality. Great people. They're very instrumental in the Spartan Strong effort after the shooting on campus at Michigan State. They raised over $100,000. I can't remember now how many t-shirts they printed, but it was a lot. And so they also have vintage stuff. So if you want some vintage Spartan gear, like, you know, logos from the, the 60s or 70s of football, they all that cool stuff that you can't get elsewhere. And so they're one of the few licensed uh, providers of lots of those, those, um, those logos that from, the, from Michigan state. So outside of like, you know, Nike or something like that. So check them out, nudgeprinting.com. And as a listener to the show, you know, Christmas is coming up a little bit. Uh, you get, 20% off your order. If you go to, uh, if you type final four, it's one word into the coupon code at checkout on your order. You can also get our gear or both our hoodie or t-shirt at the final fours on the schedule.com slash merchandise. And there to link you directly to nudge printing. You get the same discount. If you want, uh, you can get our stuff and then you can order more than just our logo stuff. So check it out at nudgeprinting.com. You'll be glad you did. Uh, before we go into returning players, I just want to tell a brief little story which I didn't tell Rod about this beforehand, but my wife was talking to her hairdresser here at Grand Rapids, who was at a tailgate, who was at a tailgate with Stephen Izzo and his girlfriend and a couple other people and stuff. And, and she was talking to my wife. She said, yeah, I think Stephen Izzo said he's gotten a lot better this year and he's really, he's expecting to start. He's really improved. It. <laughs> my wife's like, no, I don't think he is. I think he was joking. <laughs> but, <laughs> huh. <laughs> Yeah, that would be news. Yeah, I think, and I'm sure he'd feel really bad thinking that there's actually someone there who thought he really was going to start because she's like, yeah, he seemed really short. I was surprised that he'd be a starting basketball player at Michigan State since I don't think he's quite 5'9", although I think that's what he's listed at. But we're not going to talk about the Walkers. We're going to talk about returning players from Michigan State. We'll start with Tyson Walker. And as, a, as an aside here too, this is the last year that if you're actually listed as a senior that you actually uh, can get come back with a COVID year. Now that would not be the case for Tyson Walker since this is his COVID year. But so it'll be things will make a lot more sense when we talk about players next year. If you're actually a senior, you're a senior, you know, et cetera. 
So Tyson Walker, 6'1", senior guard, uh, came back for his COVID year, uh, third year in, in East Lansing after being at Northeastern to begin his career. Uh, and he ended up as the top scorer for Michigan State, averaging 14.8 points a game on 46, 42, and 80 shooting. He was that aggressiveness that we had hoped he'd be the year before, that he wasn't quite. Uh, he was a comp- real pest on defense, great secondary score playmaker, had almost 100 assists for the season and a better than two to one assist turnover ratio. Uh, you know, he's all, all the accolades you want to shower on Tyson Walker, they're all deserved. And he is a huge re addition to the team going forward this season. Yeah, it's look, if, if, Tyson Walker and Malik Hall had not opted to take their COVID year and return. We would, we would not be talking about Michigan state at quite in quite the same fashion that we are. That's an understatement, right? Yeah. Right. In Tyson Walker, you are talking about, I think the best offensive perimeter player in the big 10 in terms of everything he can do to score the basketball. And, and, You know, it's funny. If you go back to when he was brought in from Northeastern as a portal addition, at that point, the idea was coming off that 2021 season where Michigan State had so much trouble at the point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This guy's being brought in to solve the point guard spot. And he did play a lot of point his first year at MSU. But over time, A.J. Hogarth started to gain more trust, get better, which enabled MSU last season to primarily use Tyson as an off-ball player, as a, to focus on scoring, scoring and defending. Yeah. And playmaking was still there, but it was a secondary element to what was being asked of him. And I think that's only going to... Uh, be even more the case this season because Michigan state has even more depth at the point, but it's a hell of a thing. And it's a very nice element to have on your roster. When your off ball guys have as much ability to handle and create as Tyson Walker has, Yeah, it makes Michigan state. And this is a, a trend that we've seen in the college game in recent years that, you know, you think back to, um, teams, maybe not as much UConn, but teams like Baylor, multiple guys at the same time with point guard skills. And that's what Tom Izzo has. And Tyson Walker is a huge part of that. Um, obviously, he's proven to be an outstanding perimeter shooter, and they're going to need that kind of production from him again this season. Um, but that's not all he is. I think what made a big difference for him last season was how much better he was finishing around the basket. His first season, he struggled a lot with Big Ted's size and physicality to finish plays that his speed would enable him to make, right? He's such he's so quick. He's able to get by yep. people and get to the basket, but then the next step is can you finish when you get there? Because you will usually meet resistance. And last season, I think he was stronger that enabled him more confident that enabled him to be much better finishing those plays. So, you know, he's getting consistent first team, all big 10 preseason recognition, some level of all America recognition, even which is outstanding. 
Um, and I think he's good enough, experienced enough, and level-headed enough to to likely make good on all of that. So he's he's a weapon. There's no doubt about that. I guess the real question I have with him returning this season is what – I mean, did he hit a ceiling? Is there going to be more that we're going to see from him? Do you think his shooting will be even better? Do you think he's going to be able to – more dynamic scoring? What do, you, what do you how do you see him as a different role this season as last? Besides, I mean, you mentioned that he's going to shoot more, probably less on the ball, but you know, you can always you can always shoot a little better. I mean, what was he forty one percent from three? It's really good, but yeah, forty two. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, could he? It was a higher percentage, I believe, his first year on lower volume. Um, yeah. you know, he's he yeah he. It's a good point because he solved a lot of the problems he had in his first year, which primarily came down to confidence and aggressiveness you know we spent a lot of time his first year talking about that that boy he just has to shoot he's a good shooter he has to be willing to take shots he has to be willing to try to make plays well that that all got solved last year by the end of the season he was an extremely confident and aggressive player so i don't know that i expect it to go up a level there i think you just you know you're, you're talking about more marginal improvements, just a little more consistent, um, you know, but I, I, let's put it this way. If somebody said to me right now, would you take a complete rerun of his junior year and, and, and run with it? If I gave it to you right now, I would say, yes, I would take exactly the same player. I think he's capable of even being a little bit better, but I don't think you're going to see, you know, Tyson Walker is not suddenly six, <laughs> six. Right, so the things higher, that he yeah. doesn't do like rebounding, he's not really ever going to be a great factor as a rebounder. He's probably not going to shoot 70% from three, you know, those things aren't realistic. So <laughs> yeah. in terms of what he can be, I think we know what he can be. And, and in turn, they're not suddenly asking more of him. They're not saying, okay, we lost AJ Hogard. You got to run the ship. No, they're not asking that. So I yeah. think, I think there could always be improvement, but it will, it will likely be, if it happens, it would likely be more at the margins than anything else. Yeah. I almost wonder if he has the same scoring as last year, but he's more efficient in some ways of doing it. And, and the, and yeah, the other, that could be right. And the other, and he can even score a little less. Sure. Yeah. Because, you know, minutes, but the, you know, it's something that we're going to talk about here. Michigan state's improved depth should mean that everybody is playing a little bit less among these returning starters than they did a year ago. So is that going to mean maybe he only scores 13 a night, but he's a better player? Yeah, it could yeah. be. I almost wonder too, we have we saw it a number of games. We saw even the first year he was with Michigan State, but more last year, that killer instinct that he has at the end of the, the game where you know you, he wants the ball. And I wonder if we see that a little yep. bit more this, this year. Uh, that would be the one other could big be. difference too that potentially you could see in his game. Although I think he... I think by the that's why I said by the yeah end you're right by the end he's year. kind of I don't of that know way. if you could have said it in November yeah. by February March I think he was very confident yeah. in those situations. All right, so now we'll go to the enigma, AJ Hogard. Uh, plenty of preseason recognition for this uh, point guard, a six four senior guard, averaged twelve point nine points a game and almost six assists a game. He uh, still is well over two to one assist to turnover ratio. Shot forty two, thirty three, and eighty. 
which was actually a significant improvement over his previous season, especially at the line. That's where you really noticed the biggest change at the free throw line. And as we mentioned, I don't know, every game last year, and we already started this this show, when he's locked in, he is a really tough go, uh, tough and difficult cover. When he's not, he's, uh, you know, he can be not a liability, but he's not a plus addition out there on the floor. So, you know, what AJ you get, I guess, is going to be dictate, you know, how the season goes for him and maybe Michigan State as well. Yeah, and and I alluded to this a few minutes ago. Um, the same rule still applies that as AJ Hogard goes, so goes Michigan State. With with one caveat to that, the two things I think Trey Holloman having another year under his right. belt, but maybe even more so, the arrival of Jeremy Fears. There's just no reason to to live with the unfocused AJ Hogard, you know, they've got, they've got other answers, which is a big difference. Now I happen to think that everything sets up well for not having to confront that very often, because I think AJ has come to finally and conclusively understand who he has to be. Uh, he's gotten himself in great shape by all accounts. People who saw him over the off season could see it. Um, he also, and this didn't maybe get as much attention in Michigan state circles as I think it merited, you know, he went to the Chris Paul camp, uh, for, for guards and there were some NBA scouts watching, uh, the counselors, which are the college guys who were brought in to kind of run that, but they do their own stuff too. And AJ got a lot of positive talk coming out of that camp. So. I think he's I think he finally understands what is required of him. And this is a process that point guards go through at Michigan State. You know, Jeremy Fear is going to go through it too. But some guys get it quicker than others. In AJ's case, I think he mostly got it last season, but there were enough bad moments that you had to wonder. And then at the end in the, that three-game run of the tournament, he really played like the best version of himself, I think, that's possible. And and that means, I think it's decision-making, it's having the mentality to understand that your first job is to make everybody else better and then get your own, you know? Yeah. And that's a hard balancing act for a lot of guys to walk, depending upon how they're wired. And for AJ, that's been difficult. But he's, I think he's finally figured it out. Um, it should be noted, too, that from the moment he got on campus, the big obvious weakness in his offensive game was a jump shooting. Last season, he shot 33% from three. That's good enough. Honestly, I think I see a lot of people talking about, well, the last step he has to take is to become a better three point shooter. That would be great if it happened. And there's reason to think that it might because he shot very well by all accounts all summer long and he's put in time on that part of his game. So I'm not discounting that it could happen. And if it does, it makes him better. Still, what I am saying is if he shoots only as well as he did last season from three, I think that's good enough mm -hmm. because he was good enough at 33% 
to force defenses to account for him, which is all he really needs. Because when that happens, that opens up his ability to get to the rim. And that's where we know AJ is at his best. He's getting to the basket, finishing, drawing fouls. He's gotten to be a very good free throw shooter. He was, what, around 80% last year? Big step up. And for a guy who draws contact the way he does, that's huge. So, you know, I guess my point there is I would take what we got from AJ as a jump shooter last year. If he can be better, hey, that's (laughs) fantastic. You take that. Yeah. But I don't think it's necessary for him to be better. I think what makes him better this year is just continued focus and, and understanding of the balance he has to, the line he's got to walk to make his team play at its best. I was at the Big Ten tournament, so I did not see this, but people who are watching that on television, the Michigan State's game against Ohio State, there was a long stretch where he sits on the bench and looks sullen and sulky and, you know, by uh, Tom Izzo, where Izzo's talking to him, we'll just say. Uh, I think that really epitomizes the relationship Izzo has with the point guards and sort of, and what's impressive is the response, right? I think, you know, people criticize Izzo and they're worried about, you know, AJ leaving, all kinds of things, right, come out of that. And you saw a response, a guy who looked the best he had all season right after that, the NCAA tournament. I think that just shows the depth of relationship that the coach has with his players and the way they respond. And, you know, I think Izzo is kind of a master in many ways. He's proven through the years that of how he can get the most from players, maybe even, you know, sometimes when they don't think they can do it themselves or when they don't, you know, think there's a problem. And so uh, I'm very hopeful that this, that whatever it was is maybe totally worked itself out. Well, again, you know, he, AJ saw the difference when he's engaged, when he's locked in as he was in those three tournament games, it's a different deal. It's a different deal for him. It's a different deal for his team. When he's not, you see results like they saw in that big 10 tournament game against Ohio state. So it's all there. But I, when you listen to Izzo over this off season, talk about, the way his veterans have handled things. Well, AJ's part of that. And so I right. think there is a, well, I don't think, I mean, I've, I've heard this. There is a level of confidence in terms of where his mentality is at that has not been there before. So we'll hope that that is all borne out. Well, moving on, we'll go to Jaden Akins, six foot three junior. He had a rough start to the season because he started out injured. And it took all year, like you mentioned before, for him really to come back to where he was because in the summer, and people who watch uh, Moneyball definitely saw a different Jaden than they had seen during his freshman year. Uh, he ended up averaging 9.8 points a game, four rebounds a game, shot 42, 42, and 71. So really solid uh, spot-up shooter, sound defender uh, on the wing. And uh, there was definitely real, definite talk about him leaving the program and going somewhere else. Uh, but he talked to the coaching team, the staff, and they worked out whatever they had to work out as far as uh, assuring him, I think, that the opportunities that he needed in order to advance to the next stage of his career would would be found at Michigan State. And so uh, it's going to be great seeing him. He has changed his body. Uh, if those who watch Moneyball, he looked different than yep. he had before. He definitely has gotten stronger and bigger. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I think it's a lot of expectations for his role to be similar to last year in the sense that he's going to be relied upon for his outside shooting, but also the expectation that he's going to be doing more 
inside too, right? Yeah, just to play more with the ball in his hands. Um, we, we talked about it here some, and there was a segment of the fan base that just found it impossible to understand, but I think it as to why this would be the case. But there, there was a reality to the possibility of his leaving. And it wasn't that he had discord with Izzo and it wasn't that he hated Michigan State or didn't get along with his teammates. None of that stuff was true. But you have to understand with, with guys that are playing at a program like Michigan State and they are, you know, starters, playing heavy minutes, those types of things. Every one of those guys thinks about the NBA. They all do. Yeah. That's why you go to Michigan State. And right. And in Jay Nakins's case, there was a feeling for him and some of those around him that his interests beyond Michigan State weren't being served because he was essentially limited in his role in the offense as a spot-up shooter, which was true. If you watched how Michigan State played last year, that's what Jaden did. And the feeling is, well, look, he's 6'3", so he's not 6'7", so he's going to have to be able to demonstrate for his pro prospects that he can play with the ball in his hands, that he can play pick-and-roll basketball, that he can initiate offense, he can do those things. And so there was a legitimate question. Are those interests being served? Are they going to be served by another year at Michigan State? And so my understanding, and both of these guys, both Izzo and Jaden, have talked about it recently within the last couple of weeks. They acknowledged that everything that we said was going on was going on. And there was a, there were discussions between those two parties and there was a meeting of the minds. And essentially what Izzo says happened is he felt last year, Jaden wasn't trustworthy enough in those situations so that he had some work to do in order to, demonstrate that he was worthy of that trust, but that Izzo would give him that opportunity. And for his part, that was sufficient for Jaden. And I fully expect we are going to see much more of the ball in Jaden's hands, using him um, as the initiator and pick and roll offense, uh, somewhat similarly to the way Michigan State used Tyson Walker. Right. So I think we're going to see all three of those guards playing with the ball in their hands a lot rather than primarily two guys and then Jaden as a spot-up guy. They're still going to spot-up Jaden. I mean, when he shoots 40-some percent from <laughs> three, so. you have to take advantage of that, right? But I think you're going to see him – I think you're going to see him play maybe a little bit more the way we saw Tyson Walker play, where he will do some one-on-one -on -one stuff. He will get involved in pick-and-roll stuff where – it's really primarily designed for him to get shot opportunities. I hope that we see Jaden going to the basket with a lot more frequency because I felt that's something that his physical tools should allow him to do at a very high level. And in my mind, we haven't seen nearly enough of it. I mean, in the pre-Cohen Carr era, he was Michigan State's best athlete. Right. And he's a very good athlete. And now that he's, as you were alluding to, he's improved his strength. He's gotten a little stronger, a little bigger. Um, that should make him nothing but more effective getting to the basket and finishing plays. So that's what I want to see. The other thing about him, well, two other things. I think there is another level 
for him to unlock as a rebounder, especially offensively. And if you're talking about Michigan State getting back to being Michigan State on the boards, that almost always comes down to how good the, the perimeter group is. Because the front court guys are the front court guys. And I think I think Michigan State's big men were solid rebounders last year. I don't think there were problems there. It's that the wings haven't been as good as we've seen at other times. There's no reason why Jaden Nakins can't be a very good rebounder. None. And now that he's stronger, I'll double down on that. <laughs> the other thing that he brings is Jay Nakins has the potential to be an outstanding defensive player. And we've seen lots of evidence of that over his first two seasons. I think that will continue. And you put these three starting guards together that we've just concluded talking about defensively. That is as good a group as Michigan state's had in a while. All three guys can be plus defenders. And that's usually not the case. Usually like, you know, the Cassius era, you know, we talk about, well, you know, Cassius just got to be functional, right? We weren't talking about him as a guy who could lock people down ever. All three of these guys can lock people down. Well, next we'll talk about Blake Hall. So he also had a decision to make this year and he decided to return for his COVID year. He's coming back after, I guess you, well, the only way to describe it is a disappointing season for him and which was plagued by injuries. We talked about it and I think it's easy to forget because it was so early in the season. It was only a couple of games, but he was Michigan State's best player on the uh, offensive and defensive end. I mean, if you remember that overtime game against Kentucky, he had two what uh, game tying uh, buckets in overtime and in regulation. And he was instrumental for that victory. He averaged 8.9 points a game, had 4.3 rebounds a game, shot 44, 33, and 87. Uh, it was down for his three-point shooting, but I mean that was for sure related at least partially to the fact that he had a the injury in his foot. So he is back. He is healthy by all accounts. He's still getting up to speed, but close. And so our expectation, I think by the time the season starts, he'll be pretty much 100% or, or about as close as you can get. They say he's 100% now. Izzo said he's the best physically he's been since his sophomore year. So that's really good news. I, I think it's health. You know, if Malik Hall is healthy, he can be an outstanding player. And and I understand why he's not getting any preseason attention for all Big Ten teams, et cetera. I get it. I feel like Jay Nakins isn't getting enough in that regard, but Malik Hall definitely isn't. But if Malik Hall's at his best, he is an all Big Ten caliber player. We've seen it. I know people want to talk about inconsistency, and I get that. But, you know, last year, I kind of write off in that regard from him because he, from the Villanova game on, he was never straight physically. So you saw what it took away from him. Now he's back. He's feeling good. He's a fifth-year player, so he's seen a lot. He's gone through a lot. And yeah, they're going to ask, I think, a little less of him. I mean, there's still some talk that maybe in certain lineup situations you might see him on the wing, but I, I honestly don't think we're going to see that very much. I think he's primarily going to be a four. I think that's his most natural position. I thought he looked good at the three for the brief time he was healthy last year. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. he was capable of doing it, but you know, it didn't work out that way. I think now it'll be a little easier on him. They really need him. I mean, they need him to be the shooter that he was prior to the injury last season from three because we talked about 
That's one big thing that this team is missing with Joey Hauser's departure. Malik's never going to be Joey. He's not that kind of player. I don't think he'll shoot that kind of volume. But if he can be efficient as a trail guy in transition or secondary breaks, I think he's shown an ability to do that. Um, you can be good coming off, uh, you know, occasionally off catch and shoots, um, off kickouts, especially, I think, will be there for him. And, and yet he can also add some things inside the arc. He's, he's a very crafty player at times with the ball, kind of maneuvering himself into good scoring positions. So uh, I think he's headed, health permitting, I think he's headed for a very, very good senior year. And he's a critical player for MSU. Without a doubt. Uh, so then we go to another senior, Madi Sissoko, 6'9", senior. Uh, he definitely had a big coming out party early in the season against Kentucky and Gonzaga. And then uh, that level of production didn't quite keep up. And so, you know, according to Mike Garland, who we talked to, he said, well, you know, people watch some film. <laughs> they realize what he can do. Right. And they, they decided we're going to take that away. Those those rim those rim dives yeah. aren't as readily available. Right. And yeah. And I think there's no question with a guy who's had as um limited sort of basketball experience compared to lots of players, that he just looks like the game itself, he doesn't quite uh it's not as instinctive as, as it is for other players who've been playing since you know they're four or something. Uh he ended up averaging five point one points a game and six point one rebounds a game, uh led the Michigan State with uh, almost a block a game. And if anyone's transformed the body, it is. I mean, there have been a lot of players who have, but he is. He, he looks a lot bigger. Uh, That's he crazy. 20, 25 isn't pounds it? in his chest or something. I mean, it's like, yeah, he is really. You big. would have thought, well, Mati Sissoko was built like a brick house. Yeah, before anyway. Yeah. So who would have thought that kind of transformation would be in the cards? But it's it's obvious when you see him. Yeah. Um, look, I think he had a pretty good year. You know, well, compared the, to what people were expecting, offensive... right? They're expecting him to foul out all the time. Yeah, because it was this, right. He, that's a good point. He never really struggled with foul trouble, which was a big, big improvement. He was able to play the minutes he did while avoiding fouls. He was their most reliable defender. I think was good and sometimes very good in pick and roll defense, um, and decent in the post. Um, I think that increased strength might help him be even a little better down on the blocks. Um, you know, respectable, solid rebounder, and a guy who could be a threat on putbacks, lobs. You know, he could do enough to force defenses to have to play him honestly. Uh, there is some word that he's gotten to another level of consistency in his low post game. I still don't expect that we're going to see MSU just look to throw the ball down to him a lot, but it could happen more than we've seen and maybe with better results. I just, I just think he's a guy who gives you enough in the areas is a wants defensively. And as a rebounder that he's going to play a significant role again. And I think he'll be good in that role. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, we've had a couple interviews with him, and I'd encourage you, if you've not had an opportunity to listen to those, just uh, look them up. Uh, one was in, I think, February. We yeah. talked about the NIL and what he's done as far as, you know, trying to help his sure. family's village back in Mali. I mean, as, as far as a human being, he's exceptional. And he and I've met him, a, uh, met him once, and he's really, as, <laughs> he's the 
gentle giant, I think is probably a good way of putting it. True, true, true for him. And, and really that's something about this team. And Izzo's talked a lot about it. I saw a tape of him. We're, we're recording this on big 10 media day. And I saw some clips of him this morning talking about this. Everybody talks about family. Everybody talks about chemistry and that's true, but he said it's, it's real with this team and they are, we we've had the good fortune to talk to a number of these guys uh, on the podcast and to a man, everybody we've had spent time with has just handled themselves extremely well, come across as great individuals, Marty, no exception to that, but he's not alone. I think it's an easy group to root for and to get behind in that way. Yeah. So we'll keep going on the five position. We'll go to Jackson Kohler, although maybe a little four position, right? So Jackson, uh, six, nine, sophomore up and down season as you expect from a freshman uh he learning to cope with size and strength of the league uh, he averaged three points a game 2.9 rebounds a game and 11 minutes a game he shot 51 percent from the floor 25 percent from the very limited volume at the line uh and he has done the opposite he has gotten a lot slimmer he looks uh, very different than he did before and the thing he'd struggled with most was uh was obviously in defense he just just not anticipating and just having um, schooled very often, I guess at the four is probably a good way of putting it, but the word is that he's improved that a lot. And so I guess we'll see. Yeah. I'm still skeptical of him at the four, mostly because that's more challenging in some ways, physically at least than the five. And I haven't seen him master the five yet. (laughs) So, um, But I understand it from an offensive point of view because Jackson, even though he was 0 for 2 on threes last year, he does have the ability to shoot. We did see see it occasionally in the mid-range, right? Yep. Um, there were moments where he hit some mid-range he hit jumpers. Some he can extend he can extend out to the three. So I get it offensively. His transformation physically leaves him looking a lot more like, say, Joey Hauser. Yes. And I, I, I think that's going to be good for him. I think the biggest way it's going to be good for him is I just felt, you know, sometimes these guys, Jackson Kohler, I think uh, everything I've heard about him is that he's an extremely hard worker, but I think you have to go through a year before you understand just what hard work really is. So I don't blame him at all. I just think you have to experience it. And I think his conditioning last season contributed not only to issues on the defensive end, but also many, many times last year, you would see Jackson make a great post move and then be unable to finish a play at the rim. And it wasn't a strength issue. It was, I think it was that he was running out of gas a lot of times. I don't expect that to be a problem. And so I think that his conditioning and hopefully a little bit of increased quickness as a result should make him more productive in low post. He's the one guy that MSU has that you could see, hey, if the circumstances are right, that's a guy you can see them looking to just dump the ball down to and letting him work. Um, I don't think he's going to see the minutes to make a massive impact in that way, but I think he can help. And I think he's got a knack as an offensive rebounder. I think there's more to unlock there. And if he can be better defensively, uh, look, he's going to be in the rotation. Izzo's already said it. All three of these guys are going to play again. And so I don't know that I expect their numbers to take huge jumps, but what I think we will see is just more consistent play from all of them. 
and Jackson would be in that group. Yeah, I think you just definitely see more efficiency. And I, I imagine at the four spot, it's you're going to see that situationally dependent, you know, either sure. foul issues or injuries or a matchup dependent, you know, Absolutely. where you feel like, okay, Absolutely. you can put them out there against their four. Yep. Uh, so we'll talk about the third center, Carson Cooper, uh, six foot 11, former soccer player. And he added a bunch of weight, 25 pounds to his chest. Uh, and so he's very athletic. Obviously, he's got size. Um, and he would, as the season progressed, he definitely saw a larger role as he moved on, even through the NCAA tournament, finished with six points and four boards against USC and seemed to understand things better than probably, at least it seemed like he had a better feel for where he was supposed to be defensively and was not as much as a liability as you oftentimes see with freshmen. Well, it's, it's that, and also his athleticism helps him as well. It's, I think it's both of those things. Look, I, it, I like all three of these guys, but the more last season went along, the more convinced I became that the guy with the, the highest upside in that group is probably Carson Cooper. And it's because he has that combination of size and athletic ability that you don't see often. And I just think that gives him a leg up in terms of what he could be. Uh, he desperately needed to add strength, and by all accounts, he did that this off season. I shout out to we don't really we haven't really talked about it very much here, but you know I miss you made a change in their strength and conditioning uh, program, uh, bringing in Lorenzo Guess, who of course people remember as a defensive back on the Nick Saban era on the football team, but Lorenzo Guess was also a high level basketball player and played a little bit at Michigan State. Mm-hmm. could have been a high major D1 basketball player if he'd opted to go that route full-time. Um, but he has come in to run the strength and conditioning program, and all these guys were talking about having made noticeable physical changes to their body. First and foremost, the credit goes to them for putting in the work. Yeah, but I, the ones lifting the weights. But yeah. I also think you gotta you got to feel like Lorenzo Guess is having an impact. Um, and Carson Cooper would be another example of that getting stronger. If if yeah, you were to tell me of this threesome that one guy would start to separate himself this year and I had to put my money on which guy that would be, I would put my money on Carson Cooper. That doesn't mean he will, and that doesn't mean the other two guys aren't fully capable of having outstanding seasons because I think they're all going to contribute. But Carson is the guy that just seems to have the elements that lead to success at a place like Michigan state. I actually, toward the end of last season, I started seeing things that reminded me that this probably isn't this comparison probably isn't going to strike very many people as obvious, but it's what struck me. I see a lot of Xavier Tillman in him. you know, like X X wasn't really a guy with great low post game, but he was so reliable defensively. He was a good rebounder. He knew where to be at all times, and his athleticism still allowed him, even without a great low post game, to make an impact offensively because he was able to rim run and transition. He was lethal in pick and roll, and Carson Cooper, if you remember that USC game, he did some things in pick and roll as a lob, you know, as a rim rim diver, as a lob recipient. Um, that were that were very impressive, and then you add in the fact that he's six eleven. 
Yeah. There's a lot to like. This is why he had a uh, 100 uh, high major offers, right? Yeah, <laughs> well, that's another <laughs> one. It drives you crazy, right? We, we covered in our, our, we have talked about it before, and I, I asked him what, I asked him what he thought, and you know he he had some good answers, but um, it still doesn't make any sense to me because you look at him, you look at the you look at the physical package, and and his want to his his obvious attitude, and it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, and we're referring to the fact that he did not have many right. offers for this. You didn't catch up on the sarcasm there. Uh, and if you want to listen to, we talked to Carson Cooper uh, about a month or two ago or so, you can check up back in the archives there and take a listen to it. He's a really, really cool guy and uh, smart. And, you know, as you mentioned, all these guys are really uh, easy to talk to and they, they're all have the same. You can definitely see why they all get along really well. And all these three fives, before we go on to talk about Trey, is they, we're talking about, you know, diving to the rim and stuff. We're talking about the half court. We have not, we really didn't see much as far as fast court, which is where you typically see all this production from the five spot at Michigan state, you know, Xavier Tillman was one of that. And, and, and then that is what has me most excited about this position. I think next going to next year, because you expect that we're going to have a lot more of those opportunities for those guys to really showcase some, their skills and their ability to get some easy buckets on uh, the transition. Uh, so, Finally, moving on to the last player returning is Trey Holloman, six foot two, a sophomore. He averaged nine minutes a game last year, playing backup point guard to AJ Hogarth. He scored only a 1.3 points a game on 39, 23, and 60 shooting, but had an almost three to one assisted turnover ratio. So a guy who did not make mistakes. Also, as my son described him as the safe, because he locks you down, he's <laughs> very good defensive potential. And um, at least watching Moneyball, his shot looks pretty good. He definitely looks far more comfortable and confident in what he's doing. So I think we're going to see a different tray. And I think they've alluded to the fact that he may not just be playing on the point on the ball. He might be off ball. I actually think that's going to happen a lot. Um, Look, there's some things to really like about him. First of all, he's a competitor. That was obvious for the moment he got on campus. So you like that the defensive potential. This is a six, two guard with a six, eight wingspan. That's plus 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 shirts? wingspan, right? <laughs> it's a good question, but that that is part of the the reason why you're excited about him and his potential as a defender. I think he did a good job running the offense as the backup. I think he may be on ball a little less this year, but still probably from time to time will be. That's a positive. I think the biggest thing for him is just increased aggressiveness, increased confidence in his shot. His shot looks good. To me, he didn't get quite the results you'd like as a jump shooter, but I think the potential's there. So I think he's just got to be willing to take those opportunities when they come. Um, but uh, Izzo has mentioned he was maybe the most consistent guy they had over over the summer, which is, again, a really good sign. And I, I definitely think he's going to play a role. It remains to be seen how many minutes he sees, but I think the opportunities are going to be there for him. Yeah, and he's he is oftentimes, at least when you look at people, the discussion for next season, he's a forgotten player. Like he's the one people feel yep. like uh, is not going to see much, and I think they're going to be surprised. I think I do too. How much more he plays than than he did last year, even because I think people just see well, he's not the backup point guard. But I think to your point, I think he's going to have a expanded role on the team, and it's probably dependent on how he how aggressive he is. Like you said, they want to they want to if they play the way they want to play there's a role for Trey Holloman on this team. 
out of necessity. Because if they do the things they want to do, it's going to mean you've got to play guys off the bench. Yeah. Well, before we go talk about the newcomers to the team, just a reminder, if you have gutter work, it is fall, it's leaf season. And if you're like me and you hate ladders or hate getting up on ladders or you don't like heights, like me, and there is no better place to call than the brothers that just do gutters to take care of your leaf problem. They put leaf guards on. Now I just want to watch the leaves just blow off my roof. It's so much better <laughs> get up in the ladder and grabbing the leaves and all the water and all the grossness that's in the gutters. Uh, also, the ones I had that were three stories up, not getting a ladder for those. So I had to always hire someone to come out and do that. So it's so much better having not having a water pool by the side of my house. And I'm sure there are a lot of you listening who have problems with your gutters too, and you just have not taken care of it. So these guys do a great job. They take care of it. They're efficient. They're relatively inexpensive. They can repair, they can replace, they can add the leaf guards, like I mentioned. They can clean them out if that's all you want done. Whatever you need done, they can do it. They're available on the east and west side of the state, and they can take care of your work in a hurry. They came out and did my stuff in February. Uh, the brothers who just do gutters, the great thing about them is they just do gutters. They don't do anything else. They are passionate about gutter work, which is not what I'm passionate about, but I'm glad someone is, so they can do the, the right work. That needs to be done. So you can get 10% off if you mention Final Four. You can find contact information for their services underneath in the um, the description below in your podcast player or on the website. You can also um, find it at thebrothersgutters.com. You can contact Kurt if you're on the west side of the state or Greg on the east side of the state. So they got you covered. They can take care of all that really bad water problems that we have in Michigan. It's a, both a, a blessing and a curse to have all this water. So make sure you take care of it and don't have it cause problems in your house. All right, so let's talk about the newcomers. Who everyone is very excited. A top recruiting class for Tom Izzo. And we'll start with Jeremy Fears. Six foot one freshman point guard from Juliet, Illinois. Has, as by all accounts, had a seamless transition into college game. The McDonald's All-American, referred to as the next Mateen Cleaves uh, by his coach and actually Mateen Cleaves in some respects. Uh, just because his leadership is toughness. We had him on our show. You can listen to that interview back when he committed back last year. Uh, our expectation is he'll play a lot. He's the he's the one you referred to or alluded to earlier as the accountability for AJ Hogarth if he starts not playing the way Izzo wants. And so, um, a guy who can shoot, guy who can handle the ball, and all the and defend. So, I mean, I don't know what else do you want. From I think he's going to play a big role, and it's his addition that I think is, <laughs> if if possible, is being underplayed by people, um, because it's not just. <laughs> Well, okay, you're going to rest A.J. Hogard 10 minutes a night, so he'll play those 10 minutes. Nope. They'll play together sometimes. You know, it's one of the advantages of A.J. being 6'4", that, you know, he could guard bigger players, so you could defensively, that could work, you know. Um, I just love everything, everything I've seen from A.J. Hogard or Jeremy Fears, watching him the last couple of years as he's been a recruit, then a committed recruit. I've loved, and then you listen to the things Izzo has said about him. It's all coming to fruition. Everything I thought was the case. I mean, we we talked to Jeremy last winter, and we asked him how much contact he'd had with Mateen, and if he. And again, I'm not trying to pat us on the back, but we knew this, and now to hear Izzo saying exactly the same things is just great because I know what any, anybody listening to this should know what that means. When he says 
are, are, are Mateen Cleaves of this generation. That's massive. It's massive in terms of what it can mean on the court. It's massive in terms of what it can mean in leadership. I mean, Michigan State has not had, when we think about Tom Izzo and the ideal of his program, one of the things you usually think about is, well, he's got a leader on that team who's just an ass kicker, keeps everybody in line, dragging people with them. And and the reality is that we don't have a lot of them. You know, we had Mateen Cleaves and Antonio Smith early on, then Travis Walton, then Draymond Green. We haven't had one since Draymond Green, so that's more than a decade ago. That kind of personality type. We had great players, Denzel Valentine, Cassius Winston, Miles Bridges, Jaron Jackson, lots of great players. Not that kind of leader. Jeremy Fears, I think, is that kind of guy. And, and that's an intangible that will matter. How much will it matter on this team that has so many veterans in key spots? That remains to be seen. But in the long run, it's going to be huge. In terms of his impact on this team, you can use him to hold people accountable. It improves the depth. So when Michigan State goes to its bench, they're not giving up anything. And I truly believe that. I don't think they're going to give up very much. Because Jeremy Fears can do all the things Izzo wants his point guard to do. He guard the hell out of you. He makes other people better. And he can also get his own offense. That doesn't mean he's a perfect player, you know. He can improve his consistency as a jump shooter. Decision-making is always a work in progress. You know, but man, there aren't many freshmen I've been more excited about in totality than I am with Jeremy Fears. Yeah, what you like so much about it too is the fact that you have a guy who is has those leadership qualities, but actually can can do all the other things too, right? Like you see a guy like Travis Walton or Tum Tum Nair, great leaders, but they weren't able to provide that production that you're going to get from someone like him that we just suspect you're going to get from someone like him. So it yep. makes him, yeah, it's like a unicorn in some respects. So yep. uh, very exciting to have him. And just to, just the thought that you have a team and say, oh, good, Hogarth's out, so we can kind of rest for a little bit. <laughs> you get bombarded by someone else who's you know, attached that's to the thing. differently, but yeah, it's, it's they're not going to give up much and that's a rarity. Yeah, for sure. All right. So now we're going to talk about the X factor for the team. Cone Carr, 6'6", 220 pound freshman out of Georgia. <laughs> I think it's fair to say he's the best athlete on the team. <laughs> Maybe the conference uh, and uh, maybe, maybe the beyond. country. Maybe it's the country. hard to say, right? Uh, not a McDonald's All-American though. Uh <laughs> Uh, he's a, yeah, with the joke is that you leave a quarter on the top of the backboard and he'll, uh, get it, go grab the quarter and leave you two, two dimes and nickel or something. Um, so explosive is a leaper. Uh, obviously he, the questions obviously with guys like this is, you know, what is the work ethic? Like what's the jump shot? What is the rest of the game? Can he, just cause you're a great athlete, can you play great defense? Do you play great defense? Do you kind of fade out during the game? And those will be the big questions for him. I mean, if he can do a lot of those things, you expect that he's going to be able to rebound with as the physical skills. Um, is he tough enough to do that? I mean, his body looks like a guy who's not a freshman. So in that sense, I think he's, right. he's okay. But you know, those are all the, the questions, but I think they seem to be answered at least as much as it could possibly be answered in the off season. Look, he's going to play a role on this team. Like the question is exactly what and how big. Um, and, and there are two guys he and the next guy we'll talk about that I think are the potential X factors for Michigan State in terms of 
a difference from where they will be in November to where they will be in March. Because as they get more comfortable right. and hopefully have an increased role, Michigan State ceiling goes up because these guys change the athletic profile of this team. Cohen Carr might be the best athlete in the country. There are a lot of people, and, and I might be among them, who feel like he might actually be the best athlete of the Izzo era, which when you consider that includes Jason Richardson and Shannon Brown, says <laughs> an incredible amount. Uh, but it might be true. And as Izzo has pointed out, <laughs> yeah. so the difference is, you know, Jason was that kind of athlete at 6'6 and like, you know, 180 when he came in, 190. Cohen Carr is 6'6 and like 220. So it's a different thing. I think the question yeah. with him, you know, uh, offensively, it's going to be how consistent is the jumper, and that's a work in progress. But I actually, from what I saw even last season, I don't think his release looked bad. I think it's just going to be repetition, you know, getting reps and, and you'll just find more consistency with it. Uh, he's got a good handle for, uh, you know, for, for a guy of his profile. So I think in time he might be pretty effective going to the rim. He's already got enough that in transition and on the offensive glass should be lethal. But I think the biggest thing in terms of his role is going to be defense. And we're not going to know until we actually see him on the floor. You hear reports about things, but until we see it in game action, you just don't know where he's at. Um, but I think defense will be what tells the tale. And I, I look, his physical profile suggests he could be an outstanding defensive player, not just a good one. But there's a learning curve, too, and we just don't know yet where he's at on that. But sky's the limit, again, as I say. Where he'll be in March, I think, is going to be very different than where he is in November. And that that should scare the ever-loving shit out of the Big Ten and the country, by the way. Absolutely. Uh, and that that just reminds me of uh, our next player, Xavier Booker, who is maybe really an X-Factor, Xavier. Yeah. Uh, 6'11", top 10-ish recruit. Uh, it was actually, at some point, I think, even listed as number one recruit Correct. of the season. Um, Five-star recruit, obviously. So he's just the ultimate stretch four, right? He's a guy who can handle the ball and can shoot, and he's going to be the backup to the four. And I think, you know, when we were looking at Michigan State's profile after Booker committed, our expectation was, and, you know, you'd heard some rumblings from Michigan State that certainly Booker would be the starter and that you'd have the Michigan State bring in some some other player off the transfer portal to play the four, to hold him accountable, to, you know, if he's having a rough day or whatever, that he could play behind him. But I think he's probably in a better situation this this way because he's going to be playing behind Malik Hall. There's not going to be as much expected of him. And so hopefully be a little bit more relaxed and comfortable in growing into that role, as you said, which will probably change throughout that, the year. That's the hope, you know. Um, look, I, I think there's been a lot of talk that's gone maybe a bit too far in the other direction, like, oh, he's not ready to help. I, I don't believe that. I think he can. <laughs> I think he can help this team right away. But is he going to look like what people think of as a number one recruit in the country? Probably not. Not early. The good news is, in terms of where he's at, and just as importantly, those around him, it seems as if there is what you hope for at a place like Michigan State, that he needs to get stronger. He needs to understand and then put into action on the floor the kind of motor, the kind of effort. And that's not to say that he's lazy. I just think sometimes with 
high school players, especially with bigs, they don't understand what's required in terms of motor to play at a place like Michigan State. You hope that that's inherent, and sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. That's something that's got to change. All that said, uh, Xavier Booker is ranked where he's ranked for some very obvious reasons. He's 6'11", yet a very good straight-line athlete to the point that I actually think in time he could be somebody that could take people off the dribble. He's that guy. He's got a good hand. You don't see in guys his size with regularity. He has a potential to be an outstanding shooter, probably needs some continued work in terms of consistency. Um, and he's got good length, so he should be in time an effective rim protector. Um, how big the role is remains to be seen. But again, I will be surprised, very, very surprised, if we are talking about him in exactly the same terms in March as we are in November. I think for a guy like him, these four or five months, you're going to see radical change. And so the goal of your Michigan State is make sure that he is ready by March to be a serious impact guy. And I think that's a realistic goal. And finally, rounding out the 12-man roster, Garrick Norman, 6'5", Texan, who everyone harkens back to Matt McQuaid. Uh, he's a dead-eye shooter from Texas and We've had, had him on the show twice, I think, too. So you can go back and listen to those interviews yep. as well. Great kid. Uh, it's definitely understands. He's a, I mean, when you talk to him, he definitely sounds like he understands his role. Um, he definitely understands the fact that, uh, and he has that right attitude, I guess I'd say, that he's going to work hard. He's going to, uh, he cares more about the team. And they're not platitudes when he's saying either that. I, at least my impression was that he actually truly believed those things. And, I think he, he broke his hand or his thumb or something like that, just diving for a ball, like the second game of this, his high school season when he's like their best player. And so I think that's a good sign of the kind of player you want at Michigan State. You know, again, some comparisons that we saw pretty early, and I think the accuracy of which has been confirmed by the things you hear Tom Izzo say, the Matt McQuaid comparisons, which are easy, easy to make. Dallas area kid, similar size similar combination of athletic ability and um, and skill set. But, you know, sometimes cliches are cliches because there are elements of truth to them. And I think in this case, that, that is the case. Now, what's different for Gehrig is, you know, when McQuaid came in, there was a role waiting for him. There was, there was a spot. Yeah. Gehrig is in a different situation. And so – it's harder to see consistent minutes unless injuries were to hit. Um, but, you know, Izzo has talked about him being perhaps their best shooter in practice, which on this team is saying something because you've got yeah. Tyson Walker and Jaden Akins, you know? So that means something. I think in time, Garrick Norman can be a very, very good two-way player on the wing. But the one opportunity that I think is there for him this year is he has size on the wing and Michigan State's, you know, that top five group, if you're not talking about Cohen Carr, but we're talking about the five guards, they don't have much size. AJ right. at six four, but then after that it's all six one, six two guys. Garrig at six five could give them that. So I could see if he earns a level of trust and a situation presents itself where they need a little more size on the wing for a stretch. I could see that happening. That's the opportunity I think he has on this roster. But I, I'm with you in terms of how he comes across 
Um, I don't think he's going to be rattled or, or bothered by that. If he's not playing consistent minutes uh, right away, I think there's an understanding. It seems that way. Um, yeah. As to because how things look about his, yeah. what his role is going to be. Yeah. But I think sure. the future is very, very bright. Quite a, quite an embarrassment of riches here for Michigan state compared to last year. I mean, we have 12 players who, I mean, any other year you could, you could make an argument for them all starting, you know, in some respects, nine years right? out of nine years out of 10, anybody yeah. in that 12 man group of scholarship players would be firmly in the rotation. Yeah. yeah. And in today's modern game, it is extremely unusual to have this many players with opportunities yep. to transfer out, to go to, you know, to go to places, to decommit, to, to get more minutes, to actually be able to assemble this collection of players. Now we'll see how it all plays out, obviously, but it's, it is pretty unusual. And, um, I, a testament to Izzo, I don't know, giving the finger to, to the, the way everyone else does things or says that things have to be done. Um, he definitely believes. And I think this is a testament to the fact that his way of doing things relationship based is still has some role in the, in the game. That's a, he has said several times lately that for as long as he's running the program, it's going to be about relationships as opposed to transactional, a uh, transactional environment. And he means it. And he's, it's not lip service. And he's also gone on record as saying, look, there may come a time where he has to get into more transactional stuff than he would like to, but that's never, ever going to be the goal. And that's never going to be how they're going to attempt to do things the way they want to do things is exactly what you see yeah. um, with this team. And I think that, uh, I think that it's, he is, he is proof that you can still do it that way. Yeah. It's hard. And I think that's why people don't do it. And it has to fit your personality. Yeah. It has to be genuine, right? That's the other thing. It has to be genuine. And the other thing too, is let's be fair and honest about it. Tom Izzo has gravitas. (laughs) So anybody can say, well, we want to be a relationship based program. We want to, it's a family atmosphere, blah, blah, blah. Tom Izzo's got, you know, closing in on 30 years worth of a track record. You know, he has guys who are pros who are all time greats who could vouch for it. You know, he's in the hall of fame. So when he says these things, it carries a different weight than it would for, you know, pick your average high major or mid-major coach when they say it, you know, it is different. Well, it, this is a bit of a, is a love fest, but we, you know, he's not perfect. We are definitely, there are things we've, um, things that he's not perfect with. I think I suspect he's also a Packers fan, but I'm not certain about that since he's from Iron Mountain. So, you know, uh, let's go on to talk about the five keys of the season, but before we do, this is the last of our 14 installments of the Big Ten previews. There's now nothing else for you to learn from Rod. So now is the time to send in your picks for the final standings of the Big Ten. Email your predictions to me at Eric, and that's at tiffnots.com. That's E-R-I-C at T-F-F-I-N-O-T-S.com. With your 1 to 14 rankings, we'll use the Big Ten tournament standings at the end of the year. Uh, make sure you have your name. And the tiebreakers of how many points Michigan State scores against Michigan this year. They play twice. The winner takes some gift cards from Nudge Printing and also an opportunity to come on the show. Our contest ends before the first Big Ten game in December. So if you want to wait and see how the Big Ten teams look, which is what people did last year and probably helped them sniff out the Purdue uh, juggernaut before uh, before we had an opportunity to see it, 
Uh, you can wait, but make sure you get those in. We take the, whenever you can come get them in, I'll make my picks as well. I'll probably mention that at some point later. Um, I probably will actually not have Michigan State number one. I think I'm still going to go with Purdue this year. But other than that, I think uh, we'll figure those out later. Um, all right. So let's talk about the keys to the season. Number one is rebounding, which, you know, that is, like you said, that is a staple of Michigan State. That's whenever you watch broadcast, they talk about how great Michigan State is rebounding, even <laughs> like last year when they weren't rebounding great, especially certainly on the offensive end. And they haven't been top 50 for quite some time, I guess almost 2016. So like seven years now. Um, and last year, 213th in offensive rebounding, which is, I mean, out of what, 351 teams, it's pretty bad. And so, uh, that's job number one. And certainly talking to Mike Garland last year that, you know, <laughs> as you said, he insisted that it was still an emphasis, but it clearly wasn't at some point that they, they recognized it was just a weakness that you have to get around it. You're going to, you're going to know early and you're going to know, as I say, if you're watching that game on television or if you're watching it live at the Breslin, pay attention to how many guys are around the basket when a Michigan State shot goes up that are wearing green and white. And if you're not seeing many or many, um, then you'll know we're still talking about an issue. I don't think it will be. I think two things have changed. One, Michigan State's depth is much better. And again, it's not even just the bodies, but if you look at the fives, it's that Izzo has more confidence in all of those guys. So that should translate into them playing a little more freely, you know, um, in terms of pursuing offensive rebounds, let's say. I, I think Malik Hall being healthy. You know, we talked about some of the things that maybe Michigan State gives up in the transition from Joey Hauser to Malik Hall at the four. But one area Michigan State should be better is on the boards. I think I think Joey, or rather the offensive boards, I think Joey was a very good defensive rebounder, but he was never a strong offensive rebounder. And I don't I don't mean to say that Malik Hall is Antonio Smith, but I think he's better in that area than Joey was. I think his mentality is oriented a little more that way. He's a little bit better athletically. That should help. Um but I also think the other thing that's changed besides those things, the depth and, and uh, you know, the, the switch before is, and also I should add in that Jay Nakeds is healthy. Um, right. Mm -hmm. But I also think that two of the newcomers that we just talked about, Cohen Carr and Xavier Booker, are guys that as they play more, they add another level in terms of what the offensive rebounding could look like to this team. You just thought those are guys that have the physical tools that can be game changing, you know? And mm -hmm. so again, if I'm looking at what can be different about this team, but in particular, what can be different about this team from between now and March, that's one area where those guys really could make a difference. And so this, but I think it's going to be better. I'm confident in that. It needs to be better. And that's one way in which Michigan State gets back to being, quote unquote, Michigan State. Second key to the season, pace. So it goes along, it goes along with rebounding quite a bit. Michigan State was is usually transition-oriented, as we mentioned earlier. Not so last year. I mean, the offensive possession like this, number 273rd in Kempom, which is, again, super slow and what well, we were always kind of joking that they were like Wisconsin, 
uh, which is the lowest since uh, Ken Palm began keeping track of statistics back in 2010. So, uh, and it and it was not just a function of the of the opponents, obviously. I mean, when you're playing that slow, no. it's it's more no. your it's more your decision than it is the your opponent stopping you from doing Correct. it. Correct, because they were always trying Correct. to stop before. <laughs> I, I think that it was clearly by design and for good reasons, but I don't think those reasons are operative right now. You know, it, it's funny. Um, there's a there's a University of Michigan account that I I look at from time to time called U of M Hoops. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I know. But uh, <laughs> but it was interesting. They there was just the uh, the other day there was the media poll released, and he was talking. He was one of the participants in it, and was talking about you know how he had Michigan State picked second, but he said he didn't really see how um you know there were there were obvious weaknesses for Michigan State last year which is true and right. he wasn't mm-hmm. sure that there were obvious reasons why it would be different this year which again i understand if you're outside you don't cover michigan state you don't focus on michigan state how you wouldn't understand how some of these changes some of these differences could be critically important in altering some of those things. One of the things he pointed out was that Michigan state was a very poor shooting team from inside the arc. They were incredible from three, uh, but they needed to be because they weren't very good. They were in the mid, mid to high two hundreds from two. Well, why is that? Well, one reason it's very obvious is they didn't, we've talked about it. Some, they didn't have a reliable low post option to dump the ball into. That's true. And I'm not sure that that's changed radically this year. I think Jackson Kohler will be better, but I also don't think, you know, if he were going to play 28, 30 minutes a night, okay, maybe that changes things. I don't think he will. So that's probably not radically different. But one thing that could and should be very much different and a way that you generate two-point productivity is getting into transition consistently. When you're shooting layups and dunks on the break, those are two-point baskets, <laughs> and they tend to be pretty efficient <laughs> ones. And Michigan right. State did very, 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 very little of that last year. There is no reason to suspect that they will not be completely different this year and much more along the lines of what we've typically seen from Tom Izzo teams. That is true because of the caliber of guard play, but it is mostly true because of the increased depth and higher octane athleticism that is on this roster. So that's one thing that I, again, I can excuse people who don't focus on Michigan state very much, but it's a way in which playing at a higher tempo, getting into transition more consistently can really alter the entire offensive profile of this team. And frankly, I expect it to. I will be disappointed if it's not altered. Yeah. I mean, I've never felt that Michigan state has an elite half court offense. I think they've been very good, but never, maybe the times, maybe the pick and roll with Winston and Tillman was an area where they were really great. I think they have, I think they have, but I understand, but I understand the point. Yeah. It's, you don't think of, you don't think of Michigan state as, you know, I don't know, like, like peak Villanova. Right. Yeah. In the half court. So number three key to the game, 
or season. Uh, and this is one actually, when you were talking about the things that you think of when you think of Michigan State, you said rebounding and and running. And my thought was, like, well, defense is you have to have, Michigan State has always been yep. really good defensively and they it's a focus and you could argue you could do the other things really well and you still may not play as much if, if Izzo thinks you're not defending well. And so yep. last year, Michigan State was very good. I mean, they were number 42, which is a quite improvement over the previous year. But it's not where we've expected to see Michigan State in the past, where they're usually top 30. Uh, they were um, in top 10 even for the years 17, 18, and 19, 20. So uh, by our discussion, you know, it, they're certainly adding pieces that make you think that there's an opportunity for them to really improve on that this season. They got better last year, but I think Tom Izzo will be the first to say the 42nd best defense is not good enough at Michigan State, and it's not. So then I think the question becomes, are there the pieces to enable them to think that they can be better still? And I think there are. Um, Again, I keep saying the same thing, but depth is going to help because you have fresher players. And so the more more guys you can play, the, the better rested the guys on the court should be in any given moment, and that should help you. I think that there's the potential for better rim protection. Michigan State wasn't much of a shot-blocking team last year. I think that, you know, as guys like Sissoko and Cooper are better, and you've added guys like Carr and and Booker, there's potential to be better there than they were. But one interesting thing has come up recently – and I got to give credit to Jim Comperoni of Spartan Mag because he's the only guy I've seen thus far who's talked about it. If you go back to the 2004-2005 season, Michigan State had a lot of depth, similarly to what they have this year. And one of the things is one of the ways Izzo opted to utilize that depth was he had that team play full court man-to-man pressure. So don't think about Nolan Richardson, 40 minutes of hell, or Brad Underwood, 40 minutes of disaster, or whatever you think of when you think about trapping defenses that are looking to try and turn you over. It's not what it was. It was man pressure. And the idea was not to create turnovers, but rather take a physical and mental toll on your opponent. You know, over time, Michigan State, in the Izzo era was a team that often used to look to the last, say eight to 10 minutes of a game and say, that's our time. Mm-hmm. Yep. They would, if the game might be close up until then, but they would wear opponents down and the early years of his tenure, when you were allowed to play more physically, that often manifested itself that way, that guys just got tired of trying to come across the lane and avoid body checks. Um, <laughs> and it would kind of wear them out. You can't really play that way anymore. But one way the 0405 team did it was through this man pressure. I think there's an opportunity for this team to play that way. And according to Jim, that is exactly what Izzo is planning to do. And if he does, if he follows through on it, he's mentioned it a time or two in the past when he's had deeper rosters and then backed off. But I look at this team and I see no reason why they shouldn't play that way. You know? All of his guards, all of his guards have the ability, I think, to be effective doing that. 
You know, there's not a Cassius Winston where, or Travis Trice, where you look at them and you say, well, that guy's not really built for 40 minutes of that. That's not ideal. These guys are, in my opinion. Well, and you, and you don't, with the roster, you don't need 40 minutes. I mean, you can get That's 25 right. minutes. That's and right. You, you're not, you're not, you're not having That's huge drop offs, right? That's the thing. That's the idea. So it, it can help you in two ways. One is again, it takes, it exacts that physical and mental toll from the opponent. But I think the other thing that's really important is when, when now we're comparing to 2004 you've got a shot clock. That's five seconds less yeah, than it right. was then when you're talking about a 30 second shot clock and you're forcing the opponent to consistently use up eight seconds, nine seconds, before they can even get into their offense. And even then, they might not be able to cleanly get into it once they get across half court. That should help your defensive efficiency. Just because the opponent has less time to run their stuff. Yeah. Right? So you would think that's going to help. So I think that all of those things kind of combine, but the, the to, to give this team hope to be better on the defensive end. But I think it's... If Michigan State's going to be an elite team, I think they need to get back to being an elite or near elite defensive team. And I think there's a chance for that. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out, too. I mean, when you talk about the depth, I mean, every team has 12 players, or I mean, for the most part, right? Unless you've got some injuries, but it's actually the, the depth of the, quali- the quality of the depth that you have. For so, sure. Right. And that, and that the, uh, that caught, that does pose a problem potentially for Izzo as well that you have so many people who are, you know, deserve minutes. And so the one way you can get around that is just make them, make them really tired. So they're okay coming out after getting a blow after 15, you know, 10 minutes stretch or eight minutes or something like that. So that's be, that'd be one way to sort of solve that problem a little bit. Uh, going on to the next key to the season, valuing the ball, Michigan state finished 62nd in turnover percentage, which yeah, obviously that is the best finish ever by Izzo team. Uh, only one other team has finished the top 100. So a very unusual team uh, last year in the sense that valuing the ball, um, at, partly because they probably didn't run as much. And then that was sort of our theory in some respects, or mine anyway. And then Garland said, well, yeah, but the fact that they have so many people can handle the ball is more, is the majority of the reason he believed. Uh, but I think it was, you know, the style play and the fact that they have so many people who can handle the ball. Yeah. And, and look, I, I don't think they need to be in the top 65 next year for this to be good enough. Right. Um, but I, I, I do think <laughs> let's put it this way. If Michigan state can even remain a top 100 team in terms of turnover percentage and play at the kind of ramped up pace that we've been discussing, that's a huge positive. It's a rarity to see a Michigan state team value the ball as well as that team did last season. And I don't see any reason to think that it should be radically different this year. I think they are going to look to be a little more aggressive. They're going to take a few more chances. So that's all true, but I, I don't think it should become the kind of issue that we're used to talking about turnovers being with this group, you know, and, and you just yeah. think about it. If you've got a top, even a top 100 turnover percentage team that's playing fast, whoo, look out. So the fifth key to the season, you might've mentioned it once or twice, AJ Hogard. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's that simple. Um, he's got to be the best version of himself. Uh, there are reasons why it's maybe not quite as important or quite as critical. We've talked about Jeremy Fears, you know, Tyson Walker, Jaden Akins having more responsibility, Trey Holloman being more consistent. But look, there are things that AJ does that the rest of them don't, not the same way. And he's that guy. I mean, I think he is once again. He's if you're looking for an individual and saying this guy is really the key to the season, he's the guy. I guess then we can kind of spin off and start talking about the um, the season and just kind of go through the schedule briefly. And uh, I guess what we kind of expect uh, before we begin that, I just want to remind everyone that this is the place. Make if you have not yet subscribed to the show, my goodness, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of the shows. They're all free. Uh, you can. We'll have a pregame and postgame analysis for each game. So you want to know sort of what to watch for and then uh, what afterwards, you know, what happened and then sort of what we think uh, improved upon, et cetera. We'll have some special guests. I think we're hoping to get back um, maybe Bagrakis, maybe uh, Mike Garland comes on again, although he's got his own podcast now, I guess. I've not had a chance to listen to that. But um, anyway, make sure you make sure you have the subscribe so you don't miss any of this, all this information. Uh, so you'd be well prepared for every Michigan State basketball game. Especially this year, I think it's going to be a special year. There's every reason to think that it's going to be pretty great. So we'll begin with uh, Hillsdale and Tennessee or exhibition games to start the season. I think, you know, Hillsdale will be more traditional exhibition game. I'm not even sure if it's on TV, probably BTN Plus or something like that is what made my guess. Uh, it would, uh, it's sort of called by college students. And then the Tennessee game which will be maybe a little different because that was planned to be a closed practice or sorry, should a closed exhibition. And then they're going to open it up now as a leaf, a charity game as a number of other schools like Illinois and Kansas are playing, I think, and some other, other games. So that might be more of a traditional game, but there might also be some situational things. They might have like a dunk contest. I mean, it's, it's anyone's guess what's really, that's going to look like, but Hillsdale will be more the first opportunity to see the freshmen play and see all the players as far as, you know, how they're, how they look. Yeah, um, I think the Tennessee game is obviously the one I'm really intrigued by. Uh, right, they course. they haven't really let much out of the bag yet in terms of what the format's going to look like. Sometimes they don't they don't do these as exhibition games per se. Um, they do more situational stuff, et cetera. But regardless, the fact that you're going up against another high caliber opponent, um, and uh, and that gives you an early level check, as it did last season. You know, reportedly they played very well when MSU went down there to face a very good Tennessee team. And that ended up, I think, I think carrying over to an extent, you know, like you felt like, well, if Michigan State could hang with that group, not at full strength, that's a good sign for what they could be during the season. And in fact, you know, we, we saw where it ended up. So um, it'll be a nice level check for them to get. And then Michigan State has a couple warm-up games. Uh, James Madison, Southern Indiana, and I believe Southern Indiana, if I don't, if I recall correctly, is maybe three hundred and fiftieth out of three hundred fifty-one in Ken Palm as far as teams. Yeah. So that may be uh, the that may be a definite century mark as far as you know scoring. Uh, and then then the Champions Classic against Duke, which is another top five program. That's going to be the first real big test, and we'll see. Well, I think that's when we're going to really see what this Michigan State's really made of. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, Champions Classic is always um, a good indicator uh, at the early at an early stage. But we've seen Michigan State teams not play well and struggle in that game, and um, mm-hmm. and yet have very good seasons. And we've also seen the converse. I mean, we all kind of got fooled during the COVID year when MSU went to. Um, Oh, I remember it correctly. Was the Duke game part of the challenge? I think it was. It was, yes. and they still played in. They Cameron, still played you know, the in empty Cameron. Cameron, right? And Michigan State handled Duke, and I think we all felt like, oh well. And <laughs> the Duke you know, didn't make we, the tournament. <laughs> Duke wasn't very good. Yeah. So, I look. I, Duke is is ranked, you know, in the top two or three by pretty much everybody coming into the season. So. There's reason to think that they're going to be very good. I would expect that, and I would expect it to be uh, a great game and a great challenge. But I, I don't see any reason Michigan State should feel as if, uh, you know, as we we might think in some other years, that it would be an uphill battle to win this game. I think Michigan State has every chance to win it. And then they return home and uh, play Butler with welcome in Pierre Brooks and Thad Mata back into the Breslin Center. Butler's not expected to be that good this year, uh, then followed by a game against Elkhorn State. And then a game on Thanksgiving, which I think that's the first time ever se- they've ever played Thanksgiving, at least that I recall, out in uh, Palm Springs. And it's sort of a neutral site for against Arizona. Yeah, and that's going to be an interesting game. You know, Arizona's got, uh, definitely got some players. They've got some talent. And, you know, that's another top 10-ish opponent. Um so yeah, that'll be a challenge again, neutral, neutral site. Uh, then a few days later. And, and I think, you know, we had talked, I don't I think we talked about this earlier is that the schedule actually lines up pretty nicely for Michigan. There's not like massive travel or like yes. a short rest between games. They have five days to get back from air, from California, play take, take on Georgia Southern. Uh, then they have a week before they uh, open home. Uh, the first big 10 game that's sort of that weird week before the, the Big Ten season really starts in January. They take on, uh, they host Wisconsin, who is uh, should be pretty good this season. Uh, that'll be the first game on Peacock, which I think some people are grumbling about <laughs> to watch Michigan State in a streaming service, but that's just you know the nature of the sport right now. And then the other Big Ten game is at Nebraska on the tenth of of December. Yeah, and you know uh, Wisconsin certainly an, an interesting test. I expect them to be competitive. Um, but at Breslin, you know, that's one you would think you can win. And then going on the road against Nebraska, again, maybe a little more competitive Nebraska team than we've seen in recent years. But if you're looking at road games, that's one. If you're a big time contender, you think you probably ought to get. Yeah, for sure. And then the rest of about six days, take on Baylor in Detroit, Little Caesars, which would be an interesting We I think we suspect that they'll be playing Baylor next year, somewhere down in Texas, but uh, again, a neutral site. Yeah, probably in maybe in Dallas. I don't know. But um, yeah, uh, I, I like the schedule because you've got three top 10 ish teams. Baylor might maybe a little bit outside of that. Let's say three top 20 teams, but it's spaced appropriately. There's no obviously onerous travel that should impact a result. And um and they're good tests. I think the one caveat to that would be you'd maybe like to have one of them be a true road game. Right. They're no true. And that's where, strangely, there aren't any this 
you know, that's where the impact of the Big Ten ACC challenge going away hits, mm-hmm. because you know that every other year you're going to get one of those. Strangely, you know, MSU's in the Gavit games again. That's the Butler game, but they're getting a home game for the second year in a row in yeah. that. So I'm not sure that never happened with the ACC challenge. That was always one year home, one year on the road. And they don't they don't have that this year. So that's the one test you would like. But again, they're going to Nebraska in December. So it's not as if they won't have any road game experience by the time they re-enter Big Ten play. They will have that one. I think we can safely say the Gavi games are just weird. <laughs> I didn't quite figure they out the whole deal with them. Yeah. So and what would might be a difficult transition is they're only two days later, Michigan State hosts Oakland on the 18th, so two days after the Baylor game. But again, that's not much travel going from Detroit to East yeah. and so and against a lesser opponent that they should handle okay. Uh, followed by Stony Brook. And then uh, not quite New Year's Eve, but almost the day before New Year's Eve, uh, Indiana State, the first rematch since the 1979 National Championship game. That one is quietly an interesting game because Indiana State has a very good team. They're expected to be a contender in the Missouri Valley. And so that might have the appearance of, oh, it's, you know, holiday season, relive the glory of 79. You know, I don't know if Magic and and or Bird are planning on being there. Um, I would think there's a chance for Magic. I'm not sure about Bird. <laughs> I'd be surprised. Um, <laughs> but um, Indiana State's actually pretty good. And so that's... I would actually, in fact, I think Indiana State might be better than Butler. That might be the fourth best opponent Michigan State plays in the non-conference. Yeah, I could definitely buy that. Missouri Valley can be very good, especially the top tier teams, yeah. there for sure. And they and they have the look of a team that should be a contender in that league. Uh, then we move on to the Big Ten season. We start open at home against Penn State, then on the road for both the Illinois schools, Northwestern and then University of Illinois. Uh, and then, um, and I think the Illinois Northwestern is, I don't they play twice. I'm trying, it's, I mean, as I try and scroll up and down the schedule here, but I think that's the, that'll be a good start to the, the, and a very reasonable beginning. I think you'll have a good idea of where Michigan State has a chance in the big 10 stands, because my guess is you have to get the game in Northwestern, obviously, and you have to get the game at Illinois, I think, in order to have a real chance at big 10 title, because I think Purdue's going to be steamrolling a lot of these teams as well. Maybe. I mean, let's not forget, for all the Purdue juggernaut talk, they lost five games last year. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know. Um, look, I think just w- without going over every game, um, you know, one thing that's been pointed out is MSU and Purdue only meet once. It's late in the year. It's in West Lafayette. Right. So that's advantage Purdue. Um and I buy that certainly, but I, I don't think it just comes down to that. Uh, I think, again, one of the things I like about this schedule is I did not see when I looked at it, when it was finally released, um, I did not see a lot of obvious traps. We're used to seeing situations where, oh, you can see there's a Michigan State's getting bit by travel and or maybe the opponent or venue they're playing in. And you see, you know, you could point to games and say, well, that that probably is a loss, not because they're not better than that team, but because of circumstances, you know? Right. I didn't see much of that. I really didn't. And and when I look at the schedule, honestly, the only game that I looked at and said, well, they're not getting that one is that game at Purdue. 
Yeah. And that has to do with what Purdue is as a team and that Michigan State almost never plays well at Mackey. Even when they're better (laughs) than Purdue, they don't play well at Mackey. So I'm putting that one down as an L, but honestly, the other 19, I think think they got a shot. Right now, that's how I feel about it. So that's pretty good. That's not normal. The other interesting thing is, you know, the only time they play Indiana is also on the at Indiana to finish the yeah, season. Yeah, but that's, uh, you know, MSU has played well at Assembly Hall. Yeah, no, I agree. Generally speaking, it's not it's not the snake pit that that Mackey is. I would even say it's not as tough as what do they call it now? State Farm, the other Assembly Hall at Illinois. Yeah, right. That's a tougher building to me. Um, that doesn't mean that they, they'll win at Indiana, but it's just, it's not a building that scares me. And that Indiana team, I, I'm not convinced by, I think they'll be okay, but I'm not convinced that they are any kind of juggernaut. So, so the, the one devil's advocate thing I would say about the season that, that you're hearing is you, know, you look at Michigan state team and they have, they're bringing back basically the same teams they had last year. Last year, they lost eight games and how have they improved so much that you think that they're now going to be a top 10 team? I mean, I know they had a good run at the tournament, but what, what is it about this team this year that is going to be so, so dramatically different than last season that, that we should be so much more hopeful for how they're going to finish? Well, it's a number of the things we've talked about, but I think the number one thing, if I had to point to one thing above all others, it's that increased depth should allow Michigan State to be what we think of historically as Michigan State on a regular basis. And that, in turn, should mean there should be less bouts of inconsistency than we saw. So last year, you know, when all you can do offensively really is score via the three, right? That's your, that's the equation. You got to hit jump shots. If you're going to score, well, that's, that's usually, even if you're an elite shooting team from range, which Michigan state was, that's still going to be more volatile than if you are a more versatile offensive team. And we've talked about how Michigan state should be a much more diverse offensive team this year with increased depth. And also with some of the personnel additions they've made, they should do more, in terms of second chance scoring, they should do more in terms of transition scoring. So I think those things are going to make this team much more consistent on a game in game out basis. I also think the increased depth and some of the personnel changes, both to returning players in their bodies and also just new players, new faces, um, has the potential to make them a more consistent and higher level defensive team. So that's why that's my response. And it's a fair question, by the way, I alluded to the U of M hoops writer, basically asking that quite making that point. And I get it, you know, just because you've got guys coming back doesn't necessarily mean you're automatically better. That's true. But I think when you understand what Michigan state is, typically and why the changes that have occurred put them in position to be a more consistent team and more of a conventional Michigan state team and how that should in turn improve consistency. I think that's where the optimism comes from. 
and I'm talking, I'm not just talking about, you know, the national media typically when they make these, these picks is focusing on what you did in March and how many guys you've got coming back. So that's why Michigan state is in the top five. They're not in the top five necessarily for all the reasons we've just articulated. They're in the top five for much more simplistic yeah. reasons. Recruiting class two as but part of that yeah, I, as well. Yeah. That too. Yes. All those things. But if you get beyond that and you drill down and you say, okay, how does the, how do all of these things actually make them better? That's where I think the grounded reasons for optimism should come from. Well, one of my main reasons for optimism this season is we had the seat reassignment, Rod, and I have. <laughs> I, You're away from the heck. I'm away from that. Well, I only assume I am. You I think mean, you are. I've we've moved a number of sections over. Uh, I the likelihood of him being by me now. There are other hecklers, I'm sure, in the in this, but we've never had one as bad as him. So we're very yeah. excited. I think it'll be a great year. <laughs> Good, uh, but we'll see. I guess is the. Uh, just like the proofs in the pudding here, right? So uh, yep. we're going to wrap this up, and hopefully, I imagine this take, took you one or two or three or maybe a whole week's worth of uh, commuting to get this, <laughs> this episode. But it, we all like doing the nice deep dive on the team, so you have a really good feel for what's going, what's coming. And um, just as a reminder, visit our great sponsors. Go to Nudge Printing, nudgeprinting.com, twenty percent off your orders if you're entering Final Four into the coupon code at checkout. Go to Brothers to Just Do Gutters if you need gutter work. You get 10% off if you contact them and mention Final Four. Uh, also, if you've not yet had a chance to support the show and you're like, this, you guys are awesome, or we like what you do, here's you know a cup of coffee. You can set that up, either one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo on a recurring basis through Patreon or Substack. And if you want to have an opportunity to advertise in the show, we're, we're more than happy to have more sponsors of the show. Get a hold of me at erica at tffinots.com. And also... We are having the contest for the Big Ten, the Beat Rod contest. You went through 14, the Big Ten uh, standings on the finals. Make sure you add your name, number of points, and tiebreakers. Is the tiebreaker is number of points at Michigan State scores against Michigan this season. Again, email that to me at ericatiffnots.com. And if you're not yet subscribed to the show, please do so. Leave a comment in your podcast player. It helps the algorithms a ton. And the next show is, I think it's going to be where the pregame for the Hillsdale game. So we will talk to you guys soon. And until then, the final four is on the schedule. Go green.